For the last half century, one particular resident of the state of Maine has been captivating and terrifying his loyal readers and providing Hollywood with endless material for movie-going audiences the world over. Now, while considering the more than 80 published works and countless film and television adaptations of this perennial voice in American horror, we realized we're going to need some help with this one. So on this episode of Movies Ruin My Life, Alex West and Andrea Subasani from the Faculty of Horror podcast join us for our talk on the one and only Stephen King. All right, so this is Andrea. Hello. That's Alex. Hey. Devin is off screen. Hi, guys. <laughs> and this is Danny. Hi. I'm Brandon. And this is our Stephen King panel. The first one that we've done on a writer, specifically. I know we've gone into talks on a lot of uh, book-to-film adaptations before, but I, I'm really excited to tackle this guy's work. Danny, I know that for you, uh, I've been trying to get you on to do this conversation for quite some time because we talk a lot about this cat's catalog. Yeah. Okay. Now, before we get into it, we we outsourced. We've got some ringers that we brought in. <laughs> Alex and Andrea from the Faculty of Horror. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you um, for having us. It's a pleasure. Now, we've talked about you guys on a handful of episodes before. We talked about you on the Ghostbusters episode. Obviously, you were on, Alex, for the Scorsese episode. Thank you for, for jumping on that because we were a little bit worried we wouldn't have that panel that day. So that was that was great of you. We, we super appreciate it. You're super welcome. <laughs> and uh, I guess the best thing to do, how can people find you guys on, on, on Yield Interweb? The Faculty of Horror podcast has been occurring monthly for the past three years. Yeah, it's going to be four years this winter. So we put out an episode every month and we tackle sometimes clusters of movies, sometimes different themes and different movies they're in, sometimes just one movie at a time. But you can find us on iTunes and at facultyofhorror.com. Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Um, And also, this is kind of special because we generally don't do duo appearances on podcasts. We tend to divide and conquer when someone asks us for a guest spot. Um, And yeah, so this is fun for us to be together on not our podcast and not something Andrea has to edit later. (sighs) What a treat. (laughs) Well, thank you, guys. I really do appreciate you coming out. I know we've all been really excited to have you on for something for quite some time. Um, I usually like to start off this sort of episode because it's it's such a daunting topic with um, a first and favorite, and we're going to do it with both books and uh, film adaptations in a minute. Um, but before we get started, Alex, in addition to the podcast, you also have a book out, which I have right here, actually. Oh, oh. Yeah, look at it. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Look, look how lovely it is. <laughs> it's, it's Hold it up to the camera. It's beautiful. I look amazing on the front cover. <laughs> uh, yeah, that just came out. Uh, Violet 
by McFarlane Press, uh, films of the new French extremity, visceral horror, and national identity. Uh, just launched, Andrea very kindly wrote the foreword to it, and it's about the subgenre of French films that are violent and sexy and violently sexy. Um, so yeah, that's out. That's kicking around. If you want to pick it up, uh, you can get it online, Amazon, uh, McFarlandBooks.com, all that good stuff. And I mean, Andrea also has a book. Like, I yes. literally just wrote a book, so I wouldn't be the person on Faculty of Horror without a book. Yeah. <laughs> I never really intended to publish that. That was my master's thesis, and an academic publisher came around, and I spoke to my supervisor, and my supervisor said, you know, like, zombies are really big right now, and it's entirely likely that film studies are going to start uh, including that in their curriculum, and then uh, maybe your thesis could make for some materials for that. So an academic publisher isn't a terrible idea. So yeah, I don't push that too hard, but um, but I did write on zombie movies. When I was writing on it, it was 28 Days Later had just come out, and it was kind of signaling a resurgence, but of course my book couldn't have predicted where it would go and the zombie mania that still goes on mm. and uh, all the different mediums it's tackled. So, But that it is findable on um, Amazon, I believe. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And it's, uh, refresh my memory, I'm sorry, I, I know the title of it because I was just looking at it. It's When There's No More Room in Hell, That's The right. Sociology of the Living Dead. Right. And the reason for that was because it's a sociology thesis, so it pretty much posits that the reason zombies are so hot right now is we're entering an age of consumption that we know we're all to blame for. So <laughs> it's uh, the return of the repressed coming to eat us alive. Fantastic. And uh, they can also check out both you guys. Our listeners can also check out you guys. Uh, Andrea, you uh, are over at Rumorg Magazine. Mm -hmm. I was just flipping through. You were showing me some uh, the most recent issue, which yeah. looks fantastic. And, uh, and Alex, you also do a ton of freelance stuff, including with the Rumorg. Yeah, I think the uh, best way to find us for, through all that stuff is um, follow us on Twitter. We tend to post all that stuff that we do individually. Right so I'm at Scare Alex and I'm at Necromandria. Yeah, right pretty on. active on Twitter. Yeah. I, I recently had a really bad hangover and I tweeted that I'm hungover at work. Somebody please send me a pizza. Yeah, the day after my book launch. And doesn't fucking Pizza Hut tweet back? Sounds dire. Did you get your fix yet? And I was like, oh, isn't that funny? Isn't that a funny little marketing bot that was looking for the word pizza on Twitter <laughs> and found me and decided to market to me? And so, you know, the hours pass and the hours pass and I got home and didn't I fucking order Pizza Hut that night? I took, I took a picture of it and I tweeted it back to them and I said, you win. I, like, <laughs> it worked like a charm. I thought about Pizza Hut all evening and I indulged. Well played, Pizza Hut, if you're listening. We had a story like that when we were doing the uh, computer hacker uh, battle royale where uh, we kept – we were talking about war games uh, and I won't say what film won that tournament in case someone hasn't heard that episode yet. Go back and check it out. But we were talking about that film and everyone kept saying the Whopper, the Whopper, the Whopper. So I'm editing the episode and of course like I stop in the middle and like I think I'm going to go to Burger King. <laughs> but whatever. <clears throat> All right, Stephen King. Now everyone's had a chance to mull it over. Um, first and favorite book and film or television adaptation we're allowing for both. Who wants to kick us off? Dan does. Danny? Um, sure. Stop reading my book and focus. I'm kidding. You can read my I was book reading the whole the introduction. time. It's very well written so oh, far, obviously. Thank you. Um, yeah. So um, first book, favorite book. 
first film or television adaptation and favorite? Sure. Okay. Uh, first book was why? Uh, Christine. I read it to impress my mother. She gave it to me. I was <laughs> 10 years old. So I was a bit too young to understand the, uh, the kind of sexual, hormonal, the whole transformation Arnie goes through from like a prepubescent to a, you know, well, I guess a demon of some kind, but he goes through like a sexual awakening as well. Yeah. So I read that book, reread it recently, and it's nowhere near as good as I remembered. So <laughs> I don't know. Uh, as far as favorite, uh, be Different Seasons, the uh, collection of novellas from 1980. That had a lot of adaptations. That had what Shawshank and Stand by Me and App yeah. Pupil, but the fourth story is amazing. And yeah, amazing. and it was just optioned. Breathing Method was just yeah. optioned a few years ago by Bloomhouse. Blumhouse. Yeah. I know. I just like to say that. Or we like <laughs> to call them Dumbhouse. Yeah. Bumhouse. Um, and uh, I think, if I'm not mistaken, the director of uh, Doctor Strange, forthcoming oh, Doctor Strange, Scott Derrickson. Yes, yeah, is, is tied. You know, he directed that. the like sixth Hellraiser movie. Yep. That was his first one. And it yep. is the most pretentious Hellraiser movie ever. It's like this hard boiled, like cinema noir, like film noir kind of like cop story. And then it's like Pinhead shows up. Cause this is when they were just inserting Pinhead to keep the rights. Yeah. And he's like, hello, I have this box. Goodbye. <laughs> and then the cops like, Oh, I'm still so hard boiled. I was like, fuck off. I'm he's so doing the breathing method. That guy. Yeah. Apparently. He's doing, well, he there it's in talks. I can't remember who's writing it, but it's, uh, He's a television writer. It's it's uh, the names escape me. But in any case, it's probably going to be bad. One of Stephen King's greatest oh, yeah, short oh, stories yeah. is uh, Dolan's Cadillac, and that w- that came out about five years ago. That was really bad. Yeah, they hired Christian Slater to be the villain. Yikes! He's so little, though. <laughs> I find him so unintimidating. And, yeah, just and put him in my pocket and carry him around. <laughs> And films, Danny? Um, first one I watched was Carrie uh, when I was really young. And before I knew about all the, you know, standard horror tropes, so that the ending ter- was terrifying for me. Yeah. Favorite would be uh, The Shining, probably. I've seen it about 20 times. Right on. I like to go back, especially after that documentary came out about Room... Uh, room 237? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, it's fun to go back now. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that's, a, that's it for me, pretty much. Devange? Um, no Stephen King books. Gotta be honest here. <laughs> Seriously? I'm yeah. certain that you have something here of his. Oh, people have them. Uh, yeah, <laughs> they have them and they don't read them. I, furniture. I, I, it's not my, my thing. I don't know. Yeah, you're more of like I, an Asimov guy or yeah, something like that. Um, yeah. But, um, Respect so I guess that. skip that question. <laughs> Um, the first movie I probably saw was Stand By Me, um, which, um, when did that come out? Six? 85 or 86, yeah. Yeah, so I, I mean, it probably would have just been the only one that I was actually allowed to watch. Interesting. Um, you know, just by, by consequence of that, but my favorite is definitely The Dead Zone. I rewatched it and reaffirmed that opinion last night. <laughs> it's, uh, I don't know, um, walking, uh disappoint and uh, I don't know I, he's great I think Sheen's character is just hilarious is that watch. does he play the bad guy Greg Stilson yeah yeah, yeah. yeah Sheen yeah I can't remember if is there a scene in the movie where he kicks the dog to death or is it no, the no it's no. not in the movie which is I, I jokingly said to Devin How last night that's why I like the, the movie? movie better <laughs> yeah but that's okay no I understand what you're saying it's not in the film though but uh yeah I don't know it's uh 
fun movie. Um, that's about all I have to say. Alex? Uh, I think the first movie and I guess pseudo first book I read was Pet Cemetery, and these two go hand in hand because I watched Pet Cemetery at um, a sleepover I was at when I was around 10 or so, and it got so scary we all turned it off. And um, <laughs> and then a, a couple of weeks later I worked up the courage uh, – not just to go into the library. I went into the local library all of the time, but to pick up the library copy of Pet Cemetery and read the last, you know, 10 or 15 pages to figure out what happened at the end. Uh, and Pet Cemetery still kind of remains my scariest film ever. I don't sit well with it. Yeah. Um, just specifically all the Zelda stuff. I like it fucks with me into like some really deep primal way. Um, but favorite book, um, I'm not super into novelist Stephen King, the way that a lot of people at this panel are, but for me, I would say probably Carrie, uh, just cause I love a good epistle reformat and I really like the way that it kind of expands the universe while still playing within the film universe. And I really, really love the film. And then that going to say that my favorite film of, uh, kind of Stephen King's canon is, uh, The Shining, um, which uh, took a long time for me when I first saw it when I was in my teens. I didn't get it. And then it, I kept watching it and I kept watching it and it kept getting more and more familiar and I kept relating to more of it. And uh, we talk a bit about that in the Faculty of Horror episode on The Shining. So you can hear a bit more about that uh, in that episode if you are so curious. Right on. And you guys also have an episode coming up next month that uh, you're going to talk about Creep Show. Yeah, we're for our October uh, for. Our October episode, we're doing uh, Creep Show and Trick or Treat. So I love horror, trick or treat. I love Trick or Treat. Great flick. So uh, we're doing horror anthologies. And then actually, interestingly, I was just thinking the other day, we did an episode really early on, I think maybe our fourth episode, which was about the films that scared us the most. And we independently thought of that. So mine was, of course, Pet Cemetery, and Andrea's was... It. Interesting. Yep. Oh. Coincidentally, both Stephen King books. Yeah. And we also tackled Carrie on the podcast. Yes. We did. And maybe one or two more of these. <clears throat> that was it. Maybe that was it. But yeah. Maybe that was it. But um bum. Andrea? The first Stephen King book I ever read wasn't actually one of his horror books. I don't know if you guys know this one. It was called Eyes of the Dragon. Yeah. It's a weird fantasy and it was dark. You know, there was a dark wizard committing murder, and I specifically remember him squeezing a really, he raised a really poisonous spider to make this poison, and he squeezed it with a glove that was coated in chainmail, and it still made his hand swell up. Like, little details like that that Stephen King does not shy away from stick out in my head. So that was, that, that was the first, and then I chewed through the rest of them like crazy when I was a teenager. Uh, the first movie I ever saw based on Stephen King's work was It!, um, scared the living snot out of me. I was at a slumber party, and um, basically the, the very opening scene just wiped the smiles and the joy <laughs> right out of the entire yeah. sleepover. Yeah. You were like, oh, fuck, you know? And I think the other two girls were just covering their eyes the whole time, and I was riveted until, of course, the third act when it gets absolutely ridiculous. Mm. Uh, my favorite movie now is The Shining, and I kind of came at that peripherally because I was really getting into Kubrick and I was really getting into Stephen King and then I found out they worked together on something and I saw it and uh, it stuck with me in a huge way and if you've listened to our Faculty of Horror episode it's matured with me in mm -hmm. a weird way mm -hmm. that every five years when I watch it I take something new from it I relate to it differently and to me that's the mark of a fucking masterpiece absolutely a lot of even just technically a lot of filmmaking um, advancements in that 
in that movie. Yeah, of... People are still ripping off that movie. Oh, like yeah. Other films are just ripping it off left, right, and center. So, And they're still talking about it an- mm-hmm. analytically, like we just brought up with the Room 237 film, which I, I wasn't fond of personally, but it, it brought about a whole bunch of new nonfiction books. There's an amazing one that we bring up in our last episode uh, by Dan L. Olson. He put together this huge hardcover book of... Um, is it hardcover? Yeah. Okay. Um, and it's got interviews with the stars and stuff, but also a bunch of academic uh, essays and analyses that are really, really interesting. So it's still all flooding out of that damn movie. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't crazy about the documentary. I found it more interesting to hear how far gone some of these people had got, like gone into their theories, which you totally. can only really do like a close viewing of a like a Kubrick. It wouldn't work with a lot of other directors. No, I concur. All right, I guess I have to do mine now. Um, my first book was actually It, um, and I was way too young for that book. I I picked it up uh, to be kind of rebellious towards the teacher in my English class, like, you know, fuck you, I'm going to read this. And uh, I remember it being a hardship for me at that age. I really do. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I learned something from it, I suppose. Um, my favorite... Um, I've been thinking about it a lot this week, Danny, and, and we have a running joke uh, in our group of friends that uh, revolves around the man who loved flowers. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah right, you right, know what right. I'm talking about yeah, here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, don't we, go in the alley. Yeah. <laughs> don't go- do it. I'm going. Uh, don't go. I'm going. Yeah, that's what it is, yeah. yeah. And and th- that's just one, but uh, so... Uh, and also, I remember being very attached. Uh, I remember being, like, just hit with like a wave of uh of um depression from the last rung on the ladder so obviously i'm i'm going with night shift as cliche as it is um because it's just i I hate graveyard shift Uh, i won't hide that i hate that fucking story is that the one where the guy gets overrun by giant rats Rats, yeah i hate it yeah um but uh it's not badly written or anything it's a great story but it's just not my cup of tea um my pomegranate have, tea. Has everyone uh, here hey. read Night Shift? Not you, Devin. Sorry, I but <laughs> uh, you've read Night Shift. Night Shift is the one. That we, there's so many short, yeah. short stories books. Night Shift is the one with the bandaged hand. Yeah, and the eyeballs coming out of that's the hand. Right, yeah. So I remember that story. Yeah. I am um, the doorway. I think is. The I am story. the doorway. Yes, yeah. yes. That's the one with the eyeballs. And is that the one that? Um, Sorry. The man who sold the flowers. Uh, yeah, yeah, the man who left flowers. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm just wondering if you guys have all read the Ledge. That's yes, towards the end of that one. Yeah, yeah. and that appeared in Cat's Eye. Yeah, have you seen that? Oh, I did not know that. Okay, yeah, I see, Cat's I... Eye is just kind of a weird oddball. It's almost like Creep Show in that it's got you know it's an anthology style and it's got Quitters Inc. <laughs> as well as the Ledge. Yeah. Okay, because I wanted to see the Ledge and I couldn't. I thought it hadn't been adapted. I, I have to see this now. Good to know. <laughs> Cat's Eye. All right. Um, yeah. We are going to go to break in a second, even though it's been a short segment, so we can come back and get into uh, our list, but I should explain what we're doing. Anyone who's ever listened to the show knows that I fucking hate top whatever lists. I always complain when we do them, Um, but to make it a little bit uh, better for me, I selfishly made it a top 13 list, okay? I made everyone submit their uh, 13 favorite Stephen King adaptations, and... 
Uh, long story short, we've taken them all, compiled one list, including East, who's not here, so it might skew the numbers a little bit, but who cares? It'll be fun. And we're going to run through in the next probably two segments the uh, this entire list. And I, from us talking here, I think number one is probably not going to be that suspenseful, but I think there's going to be some other surprises on the list. Danny, you submitted your list to me last night, and it changed the order of everything. So I think everyone's going to be really... Uh, confused. Yeah. <laughs> I am a very disruptive presence. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if it's cool with you guys, uh, now that everyone knows what we're doing, can we take a little break, come back and get into our list? We'll do an honorable mentions first and then we'll get into it. Right on. All right. No. Cool. Do it. Why do you always do that? <laughs> what do you say? What do you do? He always says no whenever I ask, like, is that oh. okay? Or you don't want to do this? All right. Always do that. All right with me. However you're taking part in this episode, please don't forget to leave comments, share, reach out to us so we can keep the conversation going. Okay, so we're back and you guys want to get into some of the honorable mentions from our list. Because like I said earlier, we had 29 films and of course we could only pick 13 uh, based on my rules and my rules alone. (laughs) Fair. Yeah. Now... I I want to quickly say because everyone's got a visual version of everyone's bracket in front her bracket. I'm so this we just finished that sports tournament. I can't stop saying bracket. Uh, uh, not another bracket until '90s action week in March. So get a break. Um, we've got everyone's list here, and if you guys notice, um, the only people that have single selections like stuff that just they picked is Andrea and Alex. Oh, and Devin, you had uh you had sometimes they come back. <laughs> yeah, and there. Lawnmower Man. Uh, oh, and <laughs> Lawnmower Man, that's right. That's right. No, these oddballs are not surprising, except maybe I'm surprised that Salem's Lot didn't appear on uh And that was the one I wanted to ask you about, Andrea. Yeah. What resonates with this one so much? Oh, it's it's just a fantastic vampire yarn. It's, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about Stephen King's shtick, which is to say small town America. Yep. It's a small town, uh, small town America horror. And so Salem's Lot posits you've got this guy who left this teeny tiny town of Jerusalem's Lot as a kid. And he came back to do some writing because this town always kind of intrigued him. And specifically this one house on a hill in this town called the Marston House always gave him the creeps. And so he came back for inspiration. He had really hoped to rent it and stay there. But he found out that it had been rented to these very strange fellows. And all this madness ensues. And these vampires are terrorizing a small town in very small town ways. And it's uh, it was a TV movie, but a lot of horror fans... Uh, revere it. It's uh, it still gets talked about. Yeah, I've heard King talk about um, how he wanted to contrast Bram Stoker's Dracula in that very much when Stoker went into uh, the writing Dracula was a time when technology and science was granting a lot of answers, and so when Dracula goes up against technology, you know he meets his match, so to speak, in science. And then when looking at Salem's Lot, it's a time when, uh, you know, pollution is on the every the tip of everyone's tongue and, and a lot of uh, turmoil about, you know, 
nuclear war and these sorts of things. And it's interesting how he he uh, he kind of echoed or uh, you know kind of turned the principles of of Dracula on their head, which I thought was interesting about the book. One other thing I wanted to mention with Salem's Lot is that he often uh, references one of my favorite vampire books uh, when he talks about it and compares and contrasts with uh, I Am Legend, um, which is both my favorite Richard Matheson book and my favorite uh, vampire book, I, I think, by far. Um, and and I, I, love, I love the way that he talks about it, because, and I'm sure we'll get into it more, but I love when he talks about his writing style, but I particularly always find it so very interesting when any writer talks about uh, another writer's technique. Obviously, there's been a ton of articles on Stephen King in that light coming out recently because he just turned 69 and everyone's, uh, you know, celebrating along with him, I guess. But uh, so I've been reading like tons of articles on Lit Reactor and stuff like that. Um, and I, I just love when he talks about, say, for example, I Am Legend or, or Dracula or these sorts of things. And he, much like why I like your show, you guys, Alex and Andrea, because you, you know, people listening can't see me pointing at you. Um, he often grants new perspective. Like I can remember seeing a talk with him and going back and reading I Am Legend. Not going back and reading his work. Yeah. Going back and reading I Am Legend again, which is, it, it's something I just wanted to throw in there. I, I I find it so interesting how he doesn't hide from, say, for example, his jealousy of, of other writers, but also his yeah. uh, celebration of other writers. I think he's also, as a, as a figure in the horror community and the literary community, he's also a fan yeah. of content. Yeah. And that's really nice, too. Um, I remember seeing uh, a talk he was doing with was George... Martin, yeah, or, George R. Yeah. Martin. Yeah, I've seen that. Um, and there's a lot of like nice banter back and forth. And I think he loves horror, and I think he loves literature, and and he can talk about those things pretty easily, which is nice to have someone who's not only a creator uh, but also is happy to engage with other content. Yeah. Well, he was like Stephen King was initially dismissed as you know he wrote Penny Dreadfuls, mm -hmm. and a big criticism of him in the 70s was that he used brand names like McDonald's and Hall's cough drops, and that cheapened his work, stuff like that. But with I love reading his stuff on the horror genre, because, mm. like Dance Macabre, mm. because not only is he really, you know, he makes a lot of really luminous observations, but in effect, he's trying to write himself into the history of horror, and it has worked. Mm. One of his newer books, Revival, which had yep. one of the scariest endings I've ever read from him, uh, Margaret Atwood has a laudatory quote calling him, you know, an elder statesman of horror, and you can trace him all the way back to Lovecraft, and he's now been accepted yeah. by writers like Atwood. Mm -hmm. Um and one other thing, I read this essay by Peter Straub, who King later collaborated with on The Talisman, about Salem's Lot and how Stephen King, he really went for the cliches in Salem's Lot, you know, with the emphasis on the vampire coffin, and he goes for the cliches with the focus of a genre purist, but he's also didactic about it, because in old vampire lore, you didn't get your blood sucked by a vampire and become one, you drank the vampire's blood. That's right. And that's what happened in Salem's Lot. Uh which I did not know when I was younger. And sorry, just to be clear, Andrew, we're talking about the one from the 80s, not the Rob Lowe remake. I don't know yeah. if I knew there was a remake. Yeah, with Rob, Rob Lowe. Lowe. Oh, man. It's very, uh, uh, it's very mid-90s, so he's got like those kind of like little like 90s male bangs, which is kind of like parsed <laughs> out in front, and he just kind of like pouts a lot. And this was before he was like kind of re-embraced as Chris Traeger on Parks and Rec, and he's gone on to a kind of comedy career, but yeah. this is when he was still like a pouting kind of leading man almost. Mm -hmm. But I yes, I assumed you meant the 80s version. 
version. I did mean the okay. 80s version. Another thing I love about it is that one of the main protagonists is this kid. I love the way Stephen King writes kids. He I agree. often features protagonists as kids, and he writes them so well, and we can all relate. And the kid in Salem's Lot is a huge horror fan. He loves making horror models, and so they're approaching this real-life vampire with a peripheral knowledge of what vampire lore is and uh, a knowledge of the existing movies and books and all that literature. So so it is that self-referentiality, that, and I, I think a lot of the reason he had an uphill battle with his career and getting recognized critically, it's the same battle that horror movies in general have faced. And so we're happy to champion him it's finally tr- getting his due. Sorry. Another sorry. like major advantage of writing from the perspective of kids, I think, and it was kids are some of his most memorable uh, characters like Danny in the shining or Chris chambers in uh, stand by me. And even the kidnapped pupil yeah. who's, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to have met him when I was a kid. <laughs> no. Is uh, when he does kind of lapse into those dreamlike passages in his books, it's it's always it always makes sense because of the kind of I don't know, I find remembering childhood now at least through the lens of nostalgia, it seems dreamlike and mm-hmm. it seems magical. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it when you're a kid, but Well, cuz you don't understand really what's going on. You're not making sense of it the way an adult will and Yeah. Totally. Which is interesting to kind of touch on, say, for example, the the subcontext of, say, something like It, where as you grow up and you uh, kind of stop believing in these sorts of things. Uh, I love that. And it's interesting when you hear him talk about writing children, uh, by the way, a lot of his best stuff came out around the time when he had small children. And uh, he he refers to them as like, uh, is it like his case studies or he has, you know, a, a, a visual representation to like go off of, which I find so interesting. No one is based, I guess, most closely, probably Pet Cemetery. I'm guessing, is probably the closest to because he was living in a house as close to the highway and yeah. was terrified. That's of right. It. Yeah. yeah. But I don't think any any other uh, characters in any of the books are supposed to be representations of, of his children, per se. No, maybe not his children. Alex and I were talking as we were coming up here just about how many drrunken, struggling writers he writes, you know, and I, I think oh, it's yeah, absolutely. Cool way too he, many writer protagonists yeah. in his can. Yeah, it, well, is it too many, or like, do you there's, object? There's a lot. Too many? I think a bit too many. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he does have. Yeah. I like that he doesn't have to. Tr- he doesn't try to write what he doesn't necessarily know. Yeah. None of it seems disingenuous. Like. Although you could argue his very first success. It's something that he claims himself that he doesn't know and carry yeah. and that, you know, he threw it in the garbage. His wife says, oh, it's pretty good, you know, like maybe finish it. Mm. Well, I think, again, it goes to what I was <laughs> mentioning a little bit before because it, it works as an epistolary novel, uh, which is very different. There's no direct narrative that involves these characters. They're documents, they're diaries. They're, it's being pieced together through, um, you know, second or third party pieces. So there's not that kind of intimacy that he creates. And I feel like he has a real, in the bits and pieces I have read of King, there's real intimacy between children monsters and male writers those are the things he really connects with and i think that's probably where he lives most comfortably as a writer and i think one of the biggest strengths you can have as a writer is to know where your comforts lie and not not to say you shouldn't push yourself but for me i know i work best when i'm writing about horror movies so Mm. and that's what i naturally go back to and i used to fight that a lot more but now i've just kind of embraced it um so not to say i still won't push myself but you know you you live within what you're comfortable you know. I wanted to ask you guys, though, because you, you kind of uh, multiple people have kind of touched on it now with 
with King when he is uh, working with a writer protagonist. I feel as though there are a lot of writers who love glorifying uh, writer protagonists, and I don't ever feel that for any of his characters. I think, oh. for example, um, like It is super downplayed. Uh, Misery is pretty downplayed, all things considered. Uh, um, I, I don't know. I just think he, he's still willing to kind of just, like you said, um, write what he knows, but he's not trying to make any given character larger than life. It's kind of the path of the characters. I love when he says, uh, I don't like getting tied up in things like plot. <laughs> I love that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I really like this kind of natural progression that happens with his characters. And, and you have a really good point um, with his with his writer protagonist. I'm just curious if you think that are those characters larger than life representations of writers or are they accurate you know i think the larger than life kind of um emblem can be put on them because they have tended to be the protagonists of these stories and i think when you create a protagonist it immediately signifies an importance that's not necessarily king glorifying the person or the character especially in a character like jack torrance who is you know a really complex character in some regards if anything i think you see the people around the writers um really have to deal with the writing like you see wendy torrance supporting jack that makes the writing important um you know with paul sheldon in misery you know his number one fan you know there are these people who interact with their works outside of the writer but for me what i see when i think of a lot of king's work is the kind of you know banality of it the mundaneness and uh the kind of other reactionary things and i think the fact that it's a lot of protagonists does put that importance on it well, and of course, if you've read the books, there's obviously a lot more backstory and a lot more internal dialogue than we get to see in the movies. I find when he writes about writers, he does often, as Alex just said, refer to the toll it takes on the rest of his life, the toll it takes on his family, the toll it takes on his health, his mental health. Uh, you know, alcoholism was and depression are, are hurdles that he's faced, and so he applies them to his protagonists. They're never very glamorous mm-hmm. writers. You know, I think even King in his successful days was still feeling tremendous. Uh, pressure from his publishers and stress and where's my next idea going to come from and the harder you push it to come the harder it is and so that turmoil is reflected and it really resonates with me because I am a writer and god damn it don't I write better when I've had a couple of drinks it's just the way it is oh yeah yeah, uh, when King was at his worst, like writing the Tommyknockers, he was he was doing cocaine and Tommy uh, drinking, and he said it was the biggest one man party in the United States. <laughs> but, uh, one book in particular, The Dark Half from 1990, it's about a writer who retires his alter ego, and then the alter ego becomes embodied and tries to kill everyone in his life. Yeah. So it's about the dark place he has to go to to be able to produce material. Yeah. But then when it comes to life, what kind of person would that be, that alter ego you are as a writer? Would it be a relentless murderer or would it be, you know, that's an interesting thought experiment stretched out over an entire novel. Mm -hmm. Just for, um, off the top of my head, if our listeners are listening, (laughs) the the books I have in which King has a writer protagonist are Dark Half, Bag of Bones, Secret Window, The Narrator and the Body, which is Stand By Me, Misery, Tommy Knockers, The Shining, and Lisey's Story. I'm sure there's like 10 more. Probably, but that's, yeah, that's a good list right <laughs> off the top of your head. Uh, Lisey's story, it was know. 2006. Oh. Uh, King got the idea. He went into his workroom and his wife was redecorating it. And he got a sense of how his office would look after he died. And he got freaked out by it. Amazing. And so he wrote a book about a dead <laughs> author. Huh. Sorry, Andrea? I'm kind of a super fan. 
you also had that's the one that you that you brought up, Danny. That I wanted to transition into was uh, Danny brought up the Tommy Knockers. You also had this adaptation on your list. I did. Pourquoi? Well, again, I really loved the book. The TV movie was what it is, <laughs> but uh, but it 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 captured the environment and the setting. I thought and the characters, and so again, I'm really inclined to superimpose the events of a good book on a not so good movie in circumstances such as this, which happened to apply to a lot of Stephen King stuff. Um, yeah, that was kind of his foray into a weird. Uh, sci-fi thing. I thought it was terribly unique in that they're discovering this UFO and everyone's dead on it, or so they think. And it just kind of um, it just starts manifesting in the town's residence once again, a small American town, yep. and uh, and it takes over. So you've got a situation where the protagonist is kind of fighting this entire town that's under the influence. Really classic horror trope, return to the body snatchers type thing, but it was his own spin on it. And I thought it was worth being on the list. Always his own, yeah. It's always like it was similar when, like, when evil comes to a small town, what is going to happen? And Needful Things was similar too. It was the evil was a uh, Satan opens a shop in town. Yeah, I love that. Called flick. Needful Things. I know it's not a favorite of anyone, but I love that. Flick. I think it's I on really my list. Do. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Movie. And I was, was uh, I wanted to nice. ask you what uh, what prompted that addition to your list, Danny? Um, there's a what scene in which. An animal. I'm not going to ruin it if anyone hasn't seen. But there's a scene in which an animal has something extremely violent done to it. I was about 11 years old when I saw that movie, and I couldn't. I literally had to keep the lights on for about a month. I every time I closed my eyes, I saw that dog. Ugh. Do you guys remember the show? There was a Friday the Thirteenth serialized yep. show. Yep. It reminded me so much of Needful Things. Yep. So wasn't it like yep. an antique shop, yeah. and every episode followed like an object? I feel like he could have sued over that. Well, the thing is, the pre- the premise is uh, loosely from a Twilight Zone episode, though, too, isn't it? Like, there there is a Twilight Zone, uh, the black and white run, that's, I'm almost positive. Uh, I keep going Printer's Devil, but it's not, obviously, because that's where the devil works in a... It's print- basically a variation press, on the but... monkey's paw theme, right? Yeah. yeah. Buyer beware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And also, didn't we? Uh, Are you afraid of the dark? Was basically that as well in a lot of episodes with Sardo. I love that. <laughs> uh, Alex. <clears throat> sorry, Alex. Storm of the Century. We talked about oh, this yeah. a little bit earlier. You're the only one that has that one on. Um, initially on my list, I had Storm of the Century and Langoliers. Um, I bumped Langoliers because I don't know. I just bumped it. Um, but uh, those were two. Uh, TV films or TV movies that were on constantly throughout my youth. And I felt like I, I don't think I'd actually seen all of them all the way through until I went to write an article about Stephen King uh, miniseries uh, a couple years ago. And um, Storm of the Century, uh, it just creeps me out. The idea creeps me out. I think, as Andrew was just mentioning, the idea of it is more interesting to me than the actual execution although i do kind of love that uh you know this is a big thing of stephen king kind of playing into these very small town fears of you know these guys from maine and one of them's tim daly from wings just like a bunch of good people we're all just good people and some of us have some dark secrets but we're all just good people and then you have um the calm fjord character who's this kind of like evil like european man with a nice cane and oh is and he's so erudite, so he's clearly the devil. Um, 
And I love the way they play off of that. I love the setting. I, I think winter is fucking terrifying. Uh, even though I love the season, it just it creeps me out because things can happen in there. And uh, I, I, again, I love the setting of it. I love what it evokes in me, certainly parts of it. Right so, yeah. I think the movie kind of suffered at the box office only because of when it came out. There'd been sort of disaster film fatigue at the time, right? There was Dante's well, well, yeah, it's a TV movie, Dante's yeah. Peak, Volcano. Oh yeah, okay. But Hard I understand. Rain. I understand what you're saying. Yeah, but the yeah. kind of but I liked I liked the um, notion of the snowstorm because it was slowly shutting things down. It was all kind of moving in slowly. And it's not like the volcano. It's, uh, you know, there was this kind of like slow dread, which uh, I think Colin Fjord's character is like Andre Linoge or something. And uh, he's like slowly just like fucking with them and fucking with them more. And it's this kind of big crescendo at the end where he like flies away. It's CGI. Yeah. It's yeah. terrible. Yeah. Just Colin Fior, respected Canadian actor, Colin Fior, <laughs> flying away. Stephen King and CGI. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good thing you kicked the Langoliers off your list because that had the worst CGI I'd ever seen. Agonizing. It was, and there. that was one that I, again, I had a really strong emotional memory of it from watching bits and pieces of it on TV whenever I could catch it. But then watch, sitting down and watching it, I was like, oh, I can't fully say that I love it and yeah. I, I can have a bit more of an attachment to Storm of the Century. Devin, you left Langoliers on your list, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I like um, well, one, one thing that, I, that I've always uh, found a bit uh, I don't know, one thing that's put me off uh, Stephen King in a lot of cases is, is the, the um, you know, and, and forgive me if, if this is not a, a common thing throughout his his uh, his books, but um, uh, just a lot of twists, a lot of a lot of fucking twists, and and I feel like this is one movie where there is one, but it's not um, it's not uh, you know uh, really telegraphed um, like it is in in a lot of the other pieces where it's just uh, it, it does kind of come out of left field. You always know there's something. Um, very wrong here, but it but it um, builds up to uh, an ending that you think is going to happen, and then and then just kind of throws a bunch of monsters eating the, the world at you. <laughs> and that I, I don't know. I I, um, I like it, um, and I'm a bit disappointed that you've uh, you've left the movement, Alex. We almost had this one. <laughs> yeah, if, yeah. If I, I flew. On, would, I flew away CGI list. from that airport <laughs> to the small main town. The the planes and the Langliers do look god awful, though. Yeah, I mean, and it's also it's, bulky, isn't that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He plays, he's Bronson, the business Yes, yeah. One of the things I found really interesting about the Langoliers is what they accidentally go fifteen seconds back in time or something like that, yeah. right? And that's where. Um, the Langoliers wait and eat the world as the time moves forward, but nothing works back there. Um, matches wouldn't light, so the smokers were yeah. fucked. Yeah. And beer, they'd try to pour beer out, and it was flat. And the sandwiches <laughs> at the airport tasted bad. Like the, it wasn't uh, even an advantage to having an empty world. Yeah, the jet fuel uh, wouldn't ignite. Right. Was it was a plot point? That's why they couldn't. <laughs> How did they fly the plane then? I, I think CGI. The, the, plane, <laughs> the plane, I think, was still still. Correct. The rest of the world um, wasn't. Oh, okay. So yeah. once the fuel is in the plane, no problem. 
That's a lazy way of getting yeah. it out of it. I really That's get the spent- sense that that movie is he came up with a really neat situation yeah. and yeah. frankly Wrote had a hard out. time wrapping it up. Yeah, I think it ends with the entire time the action takes place, there's a guy who doesn't get off the plane. He just keeps napping. And that's yeah. how the story ends. He finally wakes up and he's like, well, what happened? <laughs> so he like missed the entire thing. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a pretty good joke. Yeah. It's interesting, Andrea, that you, you bring up the he came up with a really, you know, uh, compelling situation. Um, we were talking uh, earlier this week about uh, his uh, the story he often tells about the his ladies room conundrum. He has this unfinished story that he keeps he always tells in his lectures about how um, uh, based on like a trip that he made to Florida or something like that and how uh, in the story uh, the you know one man is waiting outside of the ladies room for his wife and then another woman comes with her boyfriend and she goes in and and so forth a mother comes with her son and the son is now waiting um and and after a while they they ask a female attendant and and she goes in and you hear her scream um and then the situation escalates and escalates and escalates and then he doesn't know how to end it and i love that about him is that he's completely open to not finishing not finishing his work i think that's so interesting he he, he, we i jokingly said the plot thing earlier but it is kind of true for him in that he he just kind of follows the logical progression of of where the characters take him and i love that i love that it's almost just like he's a vessel like his fingers are just a vessel to get his ideas to paper or something yeah, like that yeah i mean that. he's not he's know. not someone who's deeply concerned with mystique yeah. um or anything you know he's willing to be open about those things like that's a great premise but i need someone like stephen king to know how to end that yeah um but the fact that stephen king doesn't know how to end, end that is interesting to me the fact that he's also in, um the fact that he's also quite open about his alcoholism and his drug abuse and the issues he's had um also demystifies a lot of things and also informs a lot of things um, about his work and I and I do like I'm not always the biggest Stephen King fan necessarily but I it does I think I really respect him in a lot of those ways yeah for a writer of his stature to publicly admit that he often I mean I remember a woman with leukemia wrote him in the mid-2000s and asked for the ending of the dark tower because she wouldn't live long enough and he had to tell her I'm sorry I don't know it like I don't know where it's going admittedly I've only read the gunslinger yeah, in I haven't entire finished series. the Dark Tower myself either, but he you doesn't... should finish it for her. I should finish finish it for uh-huh. Idris Elba. That's because he's got the adaptation yeah. coming. Yeah, you do love yourself some Idris Elba. I, I, I I'm love surprised that Idris. wasn't like the top of your list. Yeah, it's, just it hasn't even come out. It's just like number one, <laughs> Idris like Elba. Idris I don't Elba even I don't movie. even put the title of it. I don't. I just put Idris, Idris Elba. Elba. Just put Idris. Yeah. Yeah. Stephen King's <laughs> Idris Elba. <laughs> uh, should be good. <laughs> I always find it weird that possessive thing, you know. Stephen King. Like, <laughs> yeah. if I can just digress for a moment, I grew up in Brampton. I knew a guy who played in a cover Ooh, band. Fancy. He was like sixty, and the guy's name was Larry Miller. <laughs> and it was, it was Larry Miller and the Larry Miller Band, which I found like kind of greedy. <laughs> yeah, he didn't even give his band a name, so we we were joking about how far we could take that. You know, like the album would be Larry Miller presents Larry Miller's <laughs> Larry Miller and the Larry Miller Band. Playing the songs of Larry Miller featuring Larry Miller. <laughs> yeah. You can just keep going. I think, you know, the entire Larry liner notes are just Larry Miller over and over again. All work and no play makes Larry Miller a dull boy. Yeah. 
uh, I think Stephen King is a cottage industry uh, in horror, and there are a couple of those in uh, horror. I remember, you know, I think it was post-Scream when uh, Wes Craven would kind of attach his name to something. I remember most specifically like The Wishmaster, which was awful, but it was like Wes Craven presents yeah. The Wishmaster. And, um, and I think he just was a producer on it, and they probably gave him a you know, hundred thousand yeah. dollars extra to put his name at the top of it because it's a, you know it's a brand. That's actually it's, exactly how much he got. I read that an interview about that. No, you no. I'm it's serious. Not. It's the same thing happens with Tarantino if he's a producer. He yeah. shows up for a day and they give him a hundred thousand dollars. You know what my favorite and, thing is is that when they uh, have to slub it down to Eli Roth presents, yeah. and I'm like, oh, that's just <laughs> bargain basement Tarantino yeah. guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's never seen it. He has no idea it exists. <laughs> Yeah, it's that classic Michael Caine Yikes. quote. I didn't see the movie, but I did see yeah. the house that paid for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, it paid for it. Sorry. Yeah. yeah, whatever. Does he even make movies anymore? Uh, he does. He makes terrible movies. If he we're made that burn green. Him, let's burn on his burn knock, knock. knock. Oh, I like the first big one he did. Uh, Cabin Fever? Yes. Yeah, uh, other pe- people really like Hostel? Hostel, uh, Hostel was okay. Uh, I never finished that. That was... was bored. People talked about that like it was something new in American horror, kind of like the Saw no. series, and it really wasn't. If you know your stuff, yeah, but which it's so you cute obviously that they all do. Tried. I thought it presented a, a novelty. The only credit I'll give to it is is how it kind of tackled American tourism. And, Hustle, right? Yes, yep. yeah, um, yeah. And the ending, I guess. I'm a fan of those kind of nihilistic, apocalyptic endings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Cottage Industries. We got him in horror. Because uh, there's a lot of yeah. shit getting made, and if a producer or any kind of production company can stick on a recognizable, quote-unquote, household name, which Stephen King absolutely is, it is yeah. uh, it, it's a big help to getting it distributed, selling it, you know. Well, he's such a brand, and he's such a style, and I almost wanted to put fucking Stranger Things on my list. Oh, God, it's such... <laughs> it reeks of yeah, Stephen it King. Does. It reeks of movies he hasn't made. It reeks of movies he should have made better. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Like Stephen King and Steven Spielberg had a baby. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then he, oh, sorry. Go All ahead, right, Danny. this is like going to sound really pretentious, but it's the only point I have for today, so I'm going to do it. <laughs> okay. uh, one of the things about Stranger Things is I feel like everybody really likes it because they're kind of giving us our nostalgia, right? Oh, yeah. Which we all yeah, really like. Yeah, it's nostalgia porn. And but it's kind of weird that our nostalgia as a generation is only really uh, rooted in. TV and, and and movies. I'm not complaining about that. It's just like like a movie like Stand By Me, it kind of resells the whole baby boomer, you know, America 50s, 60s vision, which has been endlessly repackaged and will continue to be. But it's weird that for us as a generation, we don't really have this, you know, cultural consensus just in terms of our felt experience. It's just going to be the movies and TV that we watched when we were younger that's going to be given back to us, not the front lawn or the picket fence, suburbia or anything like that. I just find that kind of... It has less to do with our identities and more to do with what we like. Well, it talks Maybe to it our identities a little bit in that we all remember that and we all loved it. Well, we do. Like, people around this table, you know, we, yeah. we like movies and we like horror fans and we consumed that media and that is nostalgic for us. Yeah. I, I, I'm surrounded by people who loved Stranger Things, but there have to be people out there who watch that and they're like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. What is Dungeons and Dragons? What art is? Um, it's got a really rapturous reception. I don't know if it's warranted, Stranger Things, but I guess that's the enthusiasm of nostalgia, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Uh, I quickly want to knock down the last few that aren't uh, on our list. 
Uh, both Creep Show and Creep Show Two have one vote. Uh, Danny, you voted for Creep Show. <laughs> yep. And Andrea, you voted for Creep Show Two. I did. Can you tell me a little bit about why you guys, uh, why those resonate for you guys specifically? Uh, I found the raft to be a very, very scary short story and a decent entry in Creepshow 2. It's something that comes back to me every time I go to a cottage, every single summer, just swimming out to a raft or a dock like that and just seeing some weird layer of sludge in the water and getting kind of creeped out. And yeah, that was it. The Hitchhiker is not my favorite, but I quote it on the regular. Lady, Uh, Old Chief Woodenhead. I just thought it was a solid anthology film. Yeah, and a fun collaboration. I mean, Devin, uh, just I'm going to fill you in. The raft, these teenagers are hanging out on a dock, and the, what is it, a slick of, it looks like oil, right? An oil slick, yeah. looks like an oil slick in the lake, and then one of the teenagers gets pulled through the board slowly to his agonizing, bone-crushing death. Yeah, it like eats away at it. It's really hard to read. It's yeah. disgustingly violent. So, that's the raft. So And Creepshow, too, they actually made it. Yeah, I can't remember much about Creepshow the first except uh, the Ted Danson one. Yeah. Yep. Which is, again, the horror of watching your own death, I guess, right? right? Yeah. Like with the raft, you can is see Leslie it. Leslie Nielsen in that yeah. one? Yeah. He's the, uh, he's the husband. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I like how the freeze frame of each short piece uh, goes back into the comic style. Yeah. That was a cool time. The bookends were excellent. I really like the, um, uh, the first one, was it Father's Day? Where's my cake? Oh, that old man. Yeah. and He is uh, the devil. He's so he's creepy. Worst. And I love that it features a young Ed Harris. I love that it features a young Ed Harris dancing uh, <laughs> to like pop music. Oh, um, yeah. And then he gets, he drunkenly yeah. falls into a grave or yeah, something. Yeah, and then the dad kills him. It's <laughs> yeah. like this very odd kind of like, we're just kind of plodding along and shit's happening. Uh, and of course, uh, Creepshow also offers uh, Stephen King in a leading role in oh, the um, Lonesome Death of yes. Jordy Verrill or yeah, something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I forgot talk about, about that. cameos. He can act. Our favorite. He's Stephen not bad King. in he that. Was yeah, a little cartoonish, but he was good. Yeah, no, I would say he was solid in that. I wasn't angry at it. Yeah, he does have a lot of cameos too. He's such a recognizable face. He's yeah. a funny looking fella. <laughs> um. Okay, let's knock down the last few here. Um. What do we got? Secret Window, Alex, you have that on your list. Yeah, um, I put that on because the last couple on my list, I was just like, I actually had to Google Stephen King adaptations to fill out my list. The top ten came pretty easily. (laughs) The last couple, I had to fill in. too, Uh, Yeah, and uh, I only put Secret Window on there because it functions as, uh, it likes to induce narcolepsy within me. Yeah. Um, After about the first 20 minutes, I just pass out. (laughs) No matter what time of day or where I am, I just kind of like immediately fall asleep and I wake up and Johnny Depp's murdering Maria Bello. Like, that's well, an spoiler. Uh, yeah, I mean, hey, sometimes... Totoro's pretty amazing in that. Yeah. yeah I don't yeah. Know, I think... I always think I slept through all the Totoro parts. <laughs> I liked the movie. It's just... I guess my only point would be there was no reason for him to get braces at the end there because he, his teeth were already straight. Again, slept through it. No idea what you're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I just thought it was oddly impressive. The only other film that has that effect on me is uh, Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, really? I know. It just, it honestly, I don't know what it is. I always really wanted to watch it. And it just, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) I just like pass out hard. Like, yeah. Anyway, you're lost. Yeah, I love that movie. It certainly has an effect on me. So I guess that means something. 
And the last one that I like to touch on um, that I found very strange that no one else put on, uh, and I feel like some Stephen King fans are going to be a little upset about it, but uh, Andrea, you had The Stand on your list. The Stand always comes up in my favorite Stephen King movies, and it always comes up when people are like, you know what movie should be remade? I got a lot of Stephen King titles on a list of movies that should be remade. The Stand, Firestarter, Running Man. Firestarter, Like, yes. why the fuck Absolutely. are we going back to... Why did you remake Carrie? Man, leave that yeah. alone. Pet Cemetery. It's fine. There's plenty of good stuff out there. There's movies... There's books that he's written that haven't been made into movies yet that uh, that definitely deserve it. Uh, the Talisman comes to mind yep. as one that I... Like, not even a TV movie? Let's go. That one is epic. Yeah, the big American cross-country yeah, truck. And again, yeah. it reminded me of that Stranger Things kind of brought it back. Of They're kind of flipping into the upside down. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That was that entire book that talks Damn it. <sighs> Gary Sinise, right? Yes. Yeah. Question like for you about the stand, though. Do you think that can be made into a film film? Like, it's a miniseries, right? Yes. So, do you think that, that that fucking massive book can be condensed into... Yeah, I think it can. Even when you're looking at the miniseries, there's a lot of fat that can be trimmed and it's fat that I enjoy reading because it adds color and it adds backstory but ultimately it's just a really epic tale of post-apocalypse and good versus evil and just kind of a really that there's a fundamental goodness or evil in everybody and and you'll be pulled in this direction inexorably even if you try to align yourself with this tribe if it's not right you're going to fall away from it and I thought that was just I thought it was cool yeah Yeah. and him picking Vegas as the home base for the back now was that lazy or just inevitable like would he have had to like I don't. What do you? Well, how do you feel King's about not that? that? One for subtlety is he as a writer? <laughs> no, I, I kind of like it. So they picked the city of sin. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, they they were more subtle than I don't know. What was it? Resident Evil Three, which has everything happening in Vegas. Yeah. So. Actually they all seen blend it. together for I me. Know. That entire. No, they don't. Yeah, they do. I want to be on the Resident Evil panel. I had some shit to say. I hate I, to say it, but I'm like, is that the one where she's in the dress? Where yeah. she's in the shorts with the little holster things? No, this is the third one where they're in the... This is when they're in the desert. Number three is when they're in the desert, and and Ashanti's there, and she gets killed by, like, zombie crows. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's where they had the zombie animals. Yeah. I thought that was the most interesting thing about that. Um, but no, actually, it was funny when we I was looking over some of these lists earlier, and uh, seeing the stand on yours, Andrea, actually kind of made me want to go and revisit it again. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think I've seen it, and um, yeah, I've, yeah, I would like to see that. I'm down. Yeah. Let's do it together. Let's do it. Yeah. Like when we watched the Martyrs remake. Mm. Yeah, just like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Devin, do you have anything to say for yourself putting Lawnmower Man on this list? Um, it's a movie that I've seen. <laughs> and so I, I actually realized once we sat down here that there are a few that I, I totally forgot. I knew because it. I, I knew like, that would happen. Like you guys um, just basically jumped on Wikipedia last night. <laughs> I was like, ah, oh, shit, I, I need an eight down. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Um, it's... A pretty awful movie, but it's a movie, so... Well, it didn't make it through to our top 13, so... Out. Gone. Yeah. Goodbye. Yeah, no no tears here for for Lawnmower Man, I don't think. Don't cry for me, Lawnmower Man. You're already dead. Lawnmower Man is so wonderfully dated. Oh, yeah. The Christopher Lambert... Is it? Is it? Oh, God. Am I just making... I could actually just be making... (laughs) 
I, I don't know. No, if you Pierce put Brosnan. it at number one, it's, it gets it's in. It's Pierce Brosnan, right? <laughs> yes. Yes, it is. I always just try to add Christopher Lambert to <laughs> Oh, man. If you look at his, either on IMDb or Rotten Tomatoes, if you look at all of his films, I don't think there's one that's like over 40 on either. Maybe uh, Highlander, but there's literally maybe films. Maybe Mortal Kombat. Yeah. Okay. Maybe Mortal Kombat. Probably not. Um, but yeah, they're all like, there's like, tw- you know, 20s, 12s, 2, 4. It's amazing. It's like, how do you even Less. get a score this low with that many reviews when you it's yeah. amazing it's i actually remember I learning about sex and like what sex was from a movie that my parents put on which i only recently realized stars christopher lambert and it's called night's move but night like k-n-i-g-h-t yeah. and it's about like a chess master who gets involved in like sexy murders <laughs> <laughs> it has really like warped me as a human being that was your sex ed that was my sex ed that that... you feel about chris is that why you try to impose him upon all he does have the strangest laugh and and way of speaking ever does not sound french in a highlander we always joke about (laughs) there's this scene right near the beginning where he's he's speaking with like uh i I don't know almost like an eastern european accent (laughs) or something And uh, the the cop uh, um, who's investigating him, I, I think, sees that he's from Scotland, and he's like, "Oh, like that." Um, yeah, where are you from? Yeah, where are you from? <laughs> it's like a lot of places. Yeah. <laughs> it's just Correct. like my uh, favorite part of the. Uh, he's my favorite part of Mortal Kombat, if only because he looks like he's tugging that wig on as he's getting <laughs> yeah. into frame. Oh yeah, it's got like the opposite of smize. <laughs> it's like smown. <laughs> it's like smed. <laughs> <laughs> like dead eyes yeah there you go alright if you guys wouldn't mind let's take a quick break come back and actually get into our <laughs> list okay here we go okay. it can't be stopped Hey everyone, next week on the show, it's the first in our four-part series on slasher flicks. And Trevor from Terror in Toronto is joining us. It should be pretty awesome. We hope to see you then. All right, so we're back and we're going to get into our list, our top 13 Stephen King film adaptations collectively. Now, you guys haven't actually seen the list. I know there's some that won't be a surprise to you, but we have each person's individual list in front of us, but I'm the only one that has the, the master list, if you will, the, uh, the, I don't tally. know. The tally? Yeah. The aggregate score. <laughs> All right. And let's kick it off with, uh, where are we here? At number 13, we have Dolores Claiborne. Yeah. Yeah. Just made it in. Yeah. Just made it in. You and I, Alex, uh, liking it we enough. We did it. Yeah. Put this film in. I really dig this film. I think it's super, super underrated. Yeah. I really, same. really do. Like people celebrate, uh, say, for example, Shawshank. Yeah. And, uh, and, and this film just goes completely under the radar. It makes me fucking crazy. Yeah. I don't know about you. 
Yeah, I think it's um, it's a bit cheesy. It's a little bit on the nose in some ways. Um, I do think the performances are amazing. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah, Kathy Bates, Jennifer Jason Lee, Christopher Plummer, um, uh, even um, John C. Riley. John C. Riley is fantastic. Yeah, and it, and it kind of it takes on a lot of those um, elements that we've talked about already in Stephen King um, uh, about the small town uh, and... Uh, and even uh, Jennifer Jason Lee's character is a writer, yeah. correct? So it's interesting to have a female writer in play. And I just love that it's, um, to me, it's a strong female narrative. And mm-hmm. I like the way that uh, the way that women relate to each other in this because it's set up initially as it's a lot of combatant females against each other. And then as the film progresses, it's about them figuring shit out and actually yeah. connecting. And, um, you know, we, we don't get to see that a lot. Um, it's often a lot of, you know, women kind of fighting each other in uh, popular mainstream narratives. And I like that this was about a total subversion of that. And, um, Kathy Bates, I just love her so oh, much. So fantastic. it was really great to see her, uh, in a leading role that has a lot of, um, a lot of kind of big, broad strokes that she gives a lot of subtle subtleties to. And I think that's Absolutely. really great. She definitely elevates what's on the page. Totally. No question. Yeah. I love the uh, exchange <clears throat> when she first finds out about what's going on between uh, kid Jennifer Jason Lee and uh, and the dad whose name I can't uh, think of right now. It's David Strahan. Oh, of, of course, of course. Yeah. I always have trouble pronouncing his name, so it's probably I think that's why. How you say it. Yeah, like Strathern, Strathern. Yeah. Who knows? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Send us an email. <laughs> Send, send us an email, David. Let us know. Angry email. Um, I also love the line that they say a lot throughout the film was is something to the effect of, you know, sometimes being a bitch is all a woman has. I, yep. It's great. Fantastic. Or all she has left or something yeah, like that. Yeah, some iteration of that. And there's, uh, I really love that moment uh, when when uh, Kathy Bates first finds out and uh, she breaks down. And I love... Um, just the exchange where it's like, oh, husbands die every day. Yeah. I yeah. love that. I mm-hmm. just, it, because there, there's no villain in the, the villain in this movie is also the victim. It, yes. You know, uh, arguably. Yeah. And I think there's, um, it's an interesting way because a lot of the kind of uh, things that they have to overcome within the film are, you know, for lack of a better word capital P patriarchy mm-hmm. and uh, the way that they get around that the way that the female characters get around that is through a lot of winks nods um, you know subtly implied conversations like you were just saying husbands mm-hmm. die every day um, and the, the brakes could just fail on the yeah. way home <laughs> all of these things can just happen because they know that this is their only way out yeah. is to make this thing look like an accident and the notion of accidents and what's actually intentional and not intentional and I think that's pretty great there's a there's also one very unique scene that always sticks out to me and I don't know why it's just a quick visual but I love that red sky over yes. the house yes. for just the one scene at, at sunset. You never see it again in the film even yeah. during the eclipse and all these things yeah. you never see it but you just after I believe it's after the first kind of confrontation uh after Jennifer Jason yes. Lee's character takes or gets uh her mother out of uh you know she's not being held she's not being arrested but brings her home from the police station essentially and they have their first kind of uh tete-a-tete if you will and i i I just i really really like it i I don't know yeah it works so well it shouldn't work because it's completely aesthetically uh opposed to the rest of the film but it it uh it sets the pace for kind of the next morning being like a reset i love that 
Yeah, I, I think it's something that if uh, the listeners out there haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while and are curious, um, it's it's definitely worth checking out. I feel I feel like it holds up pretty well. Yeah, yeah, perfectly. One of the things I love about Stephen King's entire oeuvre, which I'm sure we're going to get into, is the way in which he champions the average Joe, the average Joe American, the blue-collar worker. And so for me, Dolores Claiborne was such an interesting look at this woman who works her fucking ass off, you know, as a housekeeper. For $40 which is, a yeah. week. Yeah. And even at the end, 80 I think yeah. it is, or something like that. Something yeah. like that. But she works so hard. She's driven like a slave, and yet a lot of her... Work responsibilities had to do with taking emotional care of her charge. And that's the kind of women's work that is so, um, you know, from a Marxist feminist point of view, it's undervalued. It's always unpaid. And Almost so, invisible in some exactly. ways. Exactly. And so I thought he wrote that really beautifully. Yeah. No, I, I, I think it's uh, it has a lot of really powerful narrative elements to it. And um, it's it's sad to me that it kind of gets overlooked. And again, I don't think it fits into a standard Stephen King narrative because it is so female centric. And I think, you know, there's his horror stuff. And then even when you get out of his horror stuff with, uh, as I'm sure we'll be talking about, Shawshank Redemption, Stand By Me, even at Pupil, they're very much nailed. They're very much male-driven, and uh, so to see him, as Andrew was just saying, nail this kind of female element to it, it felt, um, you know, pretty pretty impressive. Right on. Yep. Gentlemen, anything to add? I haven't seen it. Sorry. No problem. It's a good flick. You should check it out. I will. Yeah, I will. it's worth it. I think if you'd seen it, of all people, Danny, I think if you'd seen it, you would have you would have it higher. On your list. Well, he would have put it on his list. You would have put it on your list. Yeah, it would have been above 13. (laughs) All right. Number 12. uh, 1983's Christine, if I'm not mistaken. John Carpenter. There's a great quote from him where he says, uh, it's not really, this film isn't really my thing or something to that effect, but it's a film I felt I had to make. He just came off of making The Thing in 1982, and that was a pretty big box office bomb, despite it now being a beloved horror classic. A lot of horror sci-fi, particularly in 82, that is just like steadfast, like cornerstone pieces of the genre. Uh, all underperformed yeah. at the box office. Like we were looking at this because we were trying to, we were kind of having an internal debate off air about, um, uh, in one episode I can't remember what it was, but about what was the best year for sci-fi, and '82 mm. is right up there. Um, and and it's so interesting that uh, that the numbers just people weren't going to movies. I guess that year or something. I yeah. don't know. The the things. Um, Lack of success is usually attributed to E.T. because mm, it was yeah. a very similar movie, came out around the same time, and it was much more family-friendly. Yeah. Which is too bad because The Thing is a way better movie. Yep. Um, so Christine is kind of – that was a late-stage choice for me. Um, but I do like that it speaks to the more absurd quality of Stephen King. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Uh, this thing is animated and it's evil. Mm-hmm. And uh, – and, um, but the thing I like about Christine that elevated it ahead of something like Maximum Overdrive for me is how well it's shot. How yeah. like there are so many moments in that film you could screen grab and it looks like a painting. Yeah, it's it's actually quite beautiful in a lot of ways. If and, you, um, I'm sorry. 
That's the second time I did that. I'm so sorry. That's okay. Um, no, I I just think it's um, uh, there's not a lot of meat to it, but it aesthetically really works for me, um, and I kind of dig it. I like that it has that silliness to it, and they weren't trying to elevate it beyond that. Yeah. And everyone kind of just went, let's just try to do the best we can and get out of here on time. Like that's the kind of sense I get of it, and I'm totally okay with that. Yeah. The things that always resonate for me in this film is that I I think that aesthetically like you said it 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 is actually kind of it feels like when you look at it it should be in a different genre like it doesn't feel like an 80s horror flick i've seen ironically i've seen people recut that trailer uh or recut footage from christine into a new trailer and um there's something uh very not john carpenter about it for one because it's very clean very very clean and very uniquely lit. Yeah. Um, whereas much of his catalog in terms of suspense stuff and even even some of his grandiose stuff like... Uh, um, Ghost of Mars. I wasn't going to go there, <laughs> but okay. I, I was going to go with something, I don't know, like uh, They Live or something yeah. like that. A lot, of, a, a lot of what you don't see is the tension. But, and, and I like... There's something... To go back to the source material, there's something about... Um, a 17-year-old boy and and his romance with his first car. You know, I know that seems very silly, but I definitely was like I'll get I'll give you an example. I was 17 when I bought my first car and um I didn't know how to talk to girls. I was socially awkward like I I you know, I I I was in a band so I guess that made it a little bit easier, but I wasn't ever really comfortable in this like I got a car I was like all of a sudden more popular, more interesting. It, it, it's it seems so silly. And this is obviously a grand version thereof, but uh, I, I find it very interesting. I also love that, like, the stories about King, uh, one of his first big purchases being, like, a, a red, white, and blue Cadillac. I love that vintage Cadillac. I, I, and then he, like, he wouldn't drive it uh, back to, I guess, because he, he's not from Bang, Bangor. He's from outside of Bangor, right? So, yeah, he wouldn't drive it back. He had, like, a $500 car that he would drive back in. And then he would, yeah, interesting. Well, a car is such a not only a, a status symbol for teenagers, but it's it's freedom. It's going to get you out of the house. It's going it, to for many teenagers. That's where many first sexual encounters happen. It's just a hotel room on wheels. That's absolutely so true. I felt like he really tapped into that in the book, anyway, about how this car was just a piece of manhood. Oh, imagine that! Like taking a black light over any one of our first cars. It just yeah. Be, oh. 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 Yeah, and even though <laughs> Jesus. the book is set in the 70s, but again, it feels like the 50s or the <laughs> yes, early 60s. Yeah. I'm sure a case could be made that it kind of deconstructs that whole American, you know, high school football yeah. drive-ins. Because, I mean, totally. in the book, Dennis breaks his leg, the football team loses every game, and then, yeah, Arnie buys the car initially to impress girls, but ends up falling in love with the car instead. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is why the book is named after the car and not, I think the love interest name is Lee. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but I, one detail that's very, you know, king is uh, the car. When it does run people over, it does so with such velocity, or I guess maybe it just does it over and over, that the yeah. paint of the car gets embedded in their skin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's I, rough. I love the first kill in the film where he squashes the... Uh, Moochie. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, in the alley? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. The car is so relentless, it will crush push itself, itself yeah. into an alley it won't, it can't fit into in order to kill someone. I love it. 
It's uh, it, it's it's a goofy one, but but it's it holds a very special place in yeah. my heart. And I mean, it's got to be pretty bad to get dumped for an essentially inanimate object. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I'd like to, but there are these headphones. Mm-hmm. So, but are these headphones evil? Who knows? Yeah. I, I I I I guess just to add. Um, uh, <laughs> Just it wasn't. Like when you pop up from behind your like <laughs> monitors. Hello. Oh, I hey. It's like a kid show. You still here? <laughs> I just like the idea of a giant 1958 Plymouth Fury, like the most clumsy fucking possible murder. Oh like, just yeah. Go to a second floor. Like go to a slightly thinner alley. Like yeah. I just like a guy like opening his front door, like looking side to side, just a car at the end of the street, just revving its engine at him. Yeah. Like, or when he drives e- through that auto shop and kills the mechanic, too. He's hiding on, like, the third floor of a building. It's, like, pitch black. He just, like, lights a lighter. The car's just right yeah. in front of him. Getting <laughs> away. There is a part the in the book in where the it. car drives into someone's house and tries to go upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to be sorry, eventually. It could be like an evilly female-possessed car, but it doesn't have to mean it's a bright (laughs) female-possessed car. (laughs) Like Maybe it's one of those dumb Becky girls. I also love the first kill in this film, by the way, where the guy just accidentally ashes on the plastic in Mm. the car, not even the seat, and the car is so pissed. You know, it's like, did you just fucking ash (laughs) in me? (laughs) <laughs> oh, you you are fucking dead. That's a problem, though, because, okay, the car is supposed to be possessed by the spirit of that Roland guy, I thought, in the book. So why would it be already evil on the assembly line? It was supposed to be its first owner that haunted it, not, not it just from be the beginning. much harder than the people <laughs> yeah. who made this film thought about like it. It's already a bad car? Other- as soon as it... Some cars are just born bad. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Last, last thing I, I do want to add on this film is that I really do like the, the little bits of original music scored by John Carpenter. Mm. I think they're very tastefully done. You know, it's no surprise he scores a lot of stuff throughout his entire catalog, but um, the mix is really nice for me between um, stuff from the era um, as well as obviously stuff that predates it being what is played generally on Christine's radio. But uh, I, I, I love um, some of those moments and how they're filled with, with very signature Carpenter um, compositions. I like it. Next up, is at number 11, we have The Mist. And I think, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken... This is the first one on the list that, uh, or no, sorry, the last one was voted on by three people. Uh, this one is the first one to appear on four lists, if I'm not mistaken. All four of us here, or? Uh, who knows? No, uh, East has it as number East 13. has it, yeah. yeah. It should have been on mine. It sh- All right, Devin. Okay. It down. should have been on mine, too. I, I, don't, I thought <laughs> I'd put it on there, because I love yeah. that ending. We've talked about how funny it is. Yeah, it's hilarious. <laughs> It's not supposed we laugh to be, because it's... we're bad people. Yeah, <laughs> I love the Mist because of Marsha Gay Harden. Oh yeah, okay. she is so fucking good in this movie in a yeah. part really? that could have been terrible. Okay. And I just find her so enigmatic and just uh, totally. Uh, she sells it to me. She totally sells exactly that character which she's supposed to be, and it's kind of a caricature, but. I, it totally resonates with me every time I watch That's it. It's interesting because I had no connection to her whatsoever. I'm going to have to go back and take another look through. Yeah, yeah. Mouthy brunettes, I like them for some reason. 
I really liked the I really liked the short story. I think there was a, there was a couple of different anxieties being played upon in the story. One of which was that this town was there was a a facility in town that was very mysterious that they were like, what's happening in there? What's happening in there? And then when all this disaster comes to pass, they can only speculate that whatever testing was going on in that facility is what's indeed what's plaguing them. And then when you're in the microcosm of the grocery store, and I say microcosm because, you know, he already, Stephen King already likes to set his stuff in really small town, uneducated everyday Joes. And so this is a grocery store, people who were just, in the wrong place at the wrong time, or the right place, considering how long they held out. But you've got you've got a grand assortment of personalities, and so when Marcia Gay Harden's character emerges as this religious fanatic who initially seems so ridiculous and so hysterical, and then you see more and more people with their increased fear and desperation just kind of gravitate to an explanation, any explanation, as absurd as it is. Yeah, we got to kill that kid, and that'll save us. What the fuck do we have to lose? Like, let's try it. And that is a terrifying hive mind, which to me just. Uh, Donald Trump, man. Yeah. It's relevant. Yeah. Okay. So with the, I mean, it's interesting to see that with, if you have a a lack of information and the circumstances are like, you know, urgent, like that on its own is scary. Like I remember years ago, Devin, we we were in, we were on tour years ago and we were somewhere on a Colorado plane and it was dark. I just remember Devin going... Is that a tornado back there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Behind that was like, in Kansas. Yeah. We had no way of Googling anything because yeah. we didn't have any data. And I'm like, it must be a tornado. Of course it is. I, mean, I got very scared very quickly. And then we thought there was multiple tornadoes. <laughs> it just got worse and worse. It was pitch black. The radio was saying there's there's tornado warnings for the area. And you would only you could only really see a good distance when, when there was a lightning flash, strike. Yeah. So you there you know there would be a lightning flash. Everybody would just kind of like you know scour yeah, yeah. The, the, the horizon, just try and find the dark spots. And yeah. So really quickly, I didn't have any information, but really quickly for me, it became a certainty. I'm like, yeah. of course it's a tornado, and we're gonna die. <laughs> so in the mist, it's like they're making all these decisions because they don't have any other information. But like, I really appreciate the nihilistic ending because I love those endings. We just talked about the thing, and that's my favorite apocalyptic ending ever because yeah. they get to share a drink, I guess. It comes up a lot, uh, it seems, in Stephen King's work, the um, the uh, division um, between people uh, using religion. Uh, I don't know. I wonder what his, yeah. his feelings are there because it seems You know what's funny? Prevalent. His daughter is a uh, minister. minister. Yeah. Really? Yeah, wow. and, and he always makes fun of it. Like, he makes light of it. It's so weird. Like, he's very proud of her, and he, he, he always illuminates that, but he um, he has a... There's a great quote from him where he says... Um, my my wife is a we, I come from a family of storytellers my wife is a writer or a novelist I'm a novelist my two sons are novelists and my uh daughter is a preacher which I consider a storyteller right <laughs> or something right. like that yeah. I, I love that um yeah he's not a very religious fellow although he has played um a priest in pet cemetery pet cemetery of course but it's a, mist. He, like you can almost um you can see where it's coming from in the mist um because it's like sure. you're you're um you're you're kind of uh you're facing all of these things that are very you know surreal and 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 you know you're almost more inclined to be like well well there's this other you know totally like left field logical thing that I believe in that I can now apply to this like the yeah. way that that she does with the um 
Uh, she's she's praying when the insect thing comes in, and it doesn't kill her because she's staying still. But yeah. she sees that as okay. Praying. I'm praying, so obviously, you know. It was interesting. I was just uh, finishing one of the scariest books I've ever read, which is called Columbine uh, by David Cullens, I believe, and it's basically just a. Uh, different. He just interviews a bunch of people about what happened during the Columbine shooting and pieces it all together. And there was one narrative I had no idea about, which was uh, a girl who was um, a slightly ostracized, like Christian girl, like went to uh, you know Christian Sunday school and you know was super religious. And apparently, uh, she uh, as one of the guys was about to shoot her. She, they said, wow. "Do you believe in God?" And she said, "Yes." And he shot her, but she lived. Which oh. so or like she didn't live, but she died, and so then she became a martyr. And like oh, I meant to her bring that parents up in our last wrote episode. a yeah. book about her called "She yes. Said Yes." Yes, but and then, then I think it came to light that it was someone else who said yeah, yes, and it was her. totally disproved. <laughs> and then right. they wanted to. So it's if you're interested in that idea, there's a whole part of this Columbine book which does deal with what the parents believe and what the actual uh, what another narrative believes. And yeah. Uh, but yeah, I think that notion of people want to believe so bad that something that could be so innocuous and so random in that sense becomes, as Andrea's saying, in this kind of microcosm of society just becomes elevated to law mm. um, or to some kind of belief system, which is truly terrifying. Yeah, yeah. And how quickly it can happen oh, God, is almost yeah. more scary than the fact of it happening. Yeah. 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 What irritated but, but, me about The Mist was I thought the main protagonist was a bit too good. He was a bit too... Yeah much the hero is he kind of rose to a leadership position very naturally simply because he was the only one who would ever act when attacks were going down he'd be like get them get like get this do this pick that up and he would kind of catch people lollygagging and like <laughs> paralyzed by fear but he was an actor and he was uh, and he was always thinking and strategizing and i think that's why the ending if you were able to give yourself over to the fact that he had done everything right only to commit the worst uh, to make the absolute worst decision that kind of uh, dooms them all or d- dooms him very much anyway. I know people found the ending funny and ridiculous and they laughed, but I was breathless. It works, don't get me wrong. I think we laugh mostly out of, uh, you know, awkward shock. Yeah. But, yeah. I just laughed because of how much it sucked. I mean, <laughs> just, you like, hated I can't it. believe that. But yeah, he is almost a caricature of, of the, a the good rational, man, good, yeah, capital G. But there's capital been that complaint about King for a lot yeah, of his maximum sure. overdrive, mm-hmm. but also his Emilio women, like same a thing. lot of the potential girlfriends in his '70s novels are all just you know good girls. You know, they're yeah. school teachers and they're very polite, and it's just mm-hmm. it's it's very banal. Yeah, but I think that's what kind of happens when you deal in high concept ideas. Is your characters kind of can sometimes suffer. And I think what we'll see is if we, when we talk about some of the more uh, smaller films in a lot of ways, these characters actually rise uh, to more interesting levels. Shall we move along? Yeah, let's do it. Was was it even a bad decision? I don't know at the time. (laughs) In in retrospect, it seems. All I can see now, you're going to have to cut this, but all I can see now in my head is like Danny walking away from the car and being like, you'll be okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 you'll be okay. Oh, God. Put a little aloe on it. <laughs> well, I, I, they gave up. Yeah. yeah Essentially. Exactly. They gave up. After all their problem solving, after all their strategies and plans, yeah. they gave up too soon. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> I just had my mom text me, do you like stews? <laughs> <laughs> like stew as in S-T-U or S-T-E-W? People like named, dudes named Stuart. Stew. How do you feel? 
<laughs> no, like I'm assuming like soups. Soups. Yeah. Oh, the answer is yes. Yeah. yeah the answer course. is always yeah. yes. All right. Just checking. Of course. Like that's a silly question. Why would you ask me that? Just tell her that, that everyone in the room. room likes stew. Tell her to bring us some Please stew now. Send yeah, stew. That's how you can make this up to us. Okay. Mom made stew. All right. Uh. Oh fuck. All right, number ten on our list. Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, well, I don't know if we should have too much to say about this. List? It's been, it's been gone over and gone over. I mean, just it's such a populist film. Andrea, yeah. did you just say why is that on your list? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I mean, this this isn't a horror podcast, and no. you know, like we mentioned, I, I think we mentioned it in this episode that uh, that the Black Museum had that uh, Stephen King debate. We mentioned, I think we mentioned it, it off today. Mic. Yeah. Okay. So I run a horror lecture series out of Toronto with Paul Korup, and twice now we have had a debate. We had a debate for the best Stephen King adaptation, and we had one for the best sequel, and they were really fun. Alex was a competitor. And so for the best Stephen King adaptation, you know, we had to obviously flesh out, we had to answer the same questions that we all had when making this list is you want the best adaptation as in the closest to the book or my favorite book or my favorite movie, even if it's nowhere near like the book and all these questions. We thought everybody was going to pick The Shining. Nobody picked The Shining. Mm. thought that was really interesting. Um, But yeah, uh, we also had to worry about whether Stand By Me and The Shawshank Redemption would emerge on this list because we are a horror lecture series. So we wanted to talk about his horror stuff. and, And I think... I didn't even grapple with that when it came to my list because even in terms of his horror stuff, it's uh, kind of feel-good floof to me. Okay. Yeah, I mean, if Tim Robbins had gotten out at the end and then, like, shot himself. Now we're talking. Then I'd be into it. I see. Yeah. Well, there are some things to keep in mind with this one. And I think that part of people's uh, apprehension about the film, to some extent, has to weigh on the fact that you can literally turn on any TV in North America, scroll through the channels available to it, and there's like a 50-50 chance that you're going to find Shawshank on some channel. And and I don't think that that's a fair thing to dismiss uh, to dismiss the film on. You know, like oversaturation uh, does make it... It lessens the value to us um, to some extent subconsciously. We were talking about this with music uh, a few days ago. Andrea, I believe, at uh, Alex's book release, how, how say, for example, when something is readily available to you, um, access somehow lessens the value of it. So, say, for example, uh, you had referenced some artists that you thought were selling their pieces at considerably under um, the value that they should be. Mm. Or music is a good example where it's, it's readily available. But um, I just I don't want to dismiss it on the basis of we've seen it all a bunch of times. I think it's an interesting piece. I really do. I don't think it's best. I don't remember where I had it on my list. I had it at six, so I had it pretty high. Um, I, I think, as is in many of Stephen King's books, it's about the characters, and it's about... he's. You're right, there's not a huge arc to the, the story. It really is completely inconsequential that he even gets out of jail, um, but it is interesting to see the characters coexisting and almost their fear of the outside world in some cases, their longing for the outside world at the same time. Um, the And I love the fact that that is a pure example of the characters driving the direction of the story. So when Stephen King says that, 
you can look to an example like Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption and say, okay, that's an example of of literally what he says he does being the case. And, you know, I have a soft spot for Tim Robbins in that era. Yeah. Um, he's fantastic in the film. It's uh, weird because I think that, like, it feels like a softer movie than it is because of the reassuring quality of Freeman's voice. I mean, for a movie about escaping prison, it is pretty conflict-free. Although, you know, Andy is repeatedly raped and that new prisoner is beaten to death and the guy with the Elvis haircut does get yeah uh, murdered by the warden or the warden's sidekick. But let me just check my notes here. Sorry, but I think that, like, the movie is more about... Um, not really the drudgery of institutionalization, but more like how do you continue to live in desperate circumstances and what are you living for, like just the way you get by, especially if you're in a place that's focused on not rehabilitation. And if you're innocent. But it's also interesting to note that a lot of them don't want to be out. Right. Yeah. But like the movie is about hope, and Andy says that repeatedly. you got to keep hoping because it's your last thing, but it's a bit too sledgehammer. It's a bit too fuzzy. Especially when um, one of the last one, some birds just weren't meant to be caged. Yep. It because of that, the movie's not totally honest about the human experience because there would be a lot of bitterness in that place and a lot more violence for the sake of violence and stuff like that. Instead of violence, always seems to be serving a purpose here instead of being a means unto itself. Yeah, yeah, that's a fair assessment. Um, I also don't like how long the fucking opening is. Like, just put him in jail already. I think just it. I don't know. It's it's been it's a popular movie for a reason, but like yeah, people who really rated, really like to watch highest movies rated movie on IMDb, don't think much period. of it because it doesn't have yeah. the first time you see the movie, you completely get it, and there's nothing more to discover. I guess that's a big problem with it. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's right there. Yeah. Anything from you, Devin? Moving along. <coughs> oh, I like this. Okay, number nine is the Running Man. It- Hell yeah. <laughs> Why don't you kick us off, sir? <laughs> uh, fuck, what's the monologue where you... I'm going to tear these camera and fucking put it into your stomach or Get something. Get on! <laughs> Jesus Christ. What a good movie. <laughs> King hates the film and often makes I, fun I of it. I don't doubt it. I don't know. It, it's... I don't know. It's fucking Smash TV. It's great. I've yeah, never just... seen it. Oh, wow. But now I would like to. I you know would love to watch about, it with you. Though, right? Vaguely. It's a reality show where normal people have to get through a sort of obstacle course okay. against professional killers. Yeah. Well, not normal people. So kind of like... Oh, yeah, prisoners. Oh, they're prisoners. Sorry. Yeah. Prisoners. No, prisoners. So, so kind of like a little people. bit like the most dangerous game Yeah. And um, what was Logan's... No, Logan's run was the, the yeah. palm. Yes. Never mind. I'm wrong. Logan's run. I think I get a lot 50. of those confused. Like Logan's run, running man. But anyway... It's uh, kind of I'll death racy. Yeah. So in the book, we've got the same scenario, except they're not in an arena. No. But it's the same kind of thing where it is it is televised. And what I really liked about it, what I found compelling from a sociology from a sociological <laughs> point of view, is that it's like a modern day arena where you've got prisoners and they're just going to fight to the death and. You're cool either way. Either they win and like you're going to get some blood and you're going to get some guts and um and so the movie puts it in a very televised, very flashy, flashy game show type scenario which was really ahead of its time in terms of look at reality TV now. Absolutely. This kind of yeah. foreshadowed everything that uh that would happen, but the um the killers that they introduce into this 
arena are so over the top and thematic. Uh, I saw a lot of shades in The Running Man in uh, 31, which I caught recently. Rob Zombie's new film. Oh, I haven't um, seen it yet. Yeah, so I think that's going to, I think people are going to be reminded. Just I like Running Man better as an idea than a movie, and I do like that it predicted the exploitation aspect of reality TV, but because so many 80s films were prescient in that manner, I'm getting kind of like foreshadow exhaustion from these. It's hard to be impressed by that particular aspect because, yeah, there was another movie. You mentioned it, Alex. Uh, Logan's Run. Uh, I feel like other movies did it first, yeah, the reality TV thing. I feel thing. like there is a bunch there's of... Battle Royale. Yeah. There's, uh, there's the Hunger Games. I mean, Running Man almost almost plays out a lot like a, like a video game um, in in uh, from the aspect of like like the the ending uh, or like like a like a video game of the era in that okay. that the plot and ending almost doesn't even really matter. Yeah, it's, it's just the adventure. Let's see how he's going to deal with this one. Like just right, the next you know, guy is like the next boss. Yeah, yeah and it's it, boss it, levels. It, it yeah, just kind of. Escalates, you know. At one point, they send two after him, mm-hmm. uh, don't they? At, at once, um, and everyone has their own specialty, their own weapon. I, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, the two yeah. on one. I think they blow up the fire guy's uh, tank. Yeah, if I remember correctly. With a hot head. Yeah. It's, it's almost <laughs> it's almost like episodic in that way. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like you're not really watching Running Man for the totality of the film. No. Um, and you know, I don't I don't know. I can get behind it there. It's just a. If they remade it, they should um, do, put more emphasis on the experience of the audience actually watching the TV show The Running Man. Mm. You know, cut to that with all the camera changes and commercials and product placement there. Mm-hmm. And then back to the movie. You know, that would be cool. Yeah. One of the things no one asks so me. funny about that movie is at one point uh, they ask someone in the audience to choose who the next gladiator <laughs> will be to go after Arnie. And what she wins is like a home version of the game. But how in the flying fuck could you play Running Man at home short of like, I don't know, sending your kids through the woods or yeah. something. And then like, it makes no sense. It's totally absurd. Do you... But- Sorry. Do you remember the means through which the viewer has to contact? Is it like call a 1-800 number? I'm curious. In this particular case, she was in the studio audience, yeah. oh, and she was a sweet little old yeah. lady, and yeah. so it kind of had some fun making her like, fucking kill him! She's just like an old bitty. But what I love about all of these arena movies, and I think what they are all kind of hinting at, is just hand-to-hand combat and survival by combat is something very primal and something very human and something we're very, very removed from. And as we started to get removed from it, you know, there was the arenas. And so now horror movies kind of play on that outlet. And so the fact that horror movies about arenas are just kind of the next stage in that development to me. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. It, like, it's a fun, fun movie. And I think that there's definitely a a really really good rewatch value to it with all the 80s excess kind yeah. of oh i love those jumpsuits by the way they got to keep those if they remake it yeah that's they're staying all right numero wheat is it we've been waiting to talk about this one for a little bit i've been trying to like stop everyone from talking too much about it so who wants to kick us off with the tv miniseries it Hmm. It's not even on my list, but it's supposed to be. Yeah. Uh, that that introductory scene with the um, the paper raft uh, going into the sewer. There's actually mm. a scene before that where he kills a little girl. Oh. Yeah. Really? She's walking up to her house with her tricycle. 
It's oh, so brief. It's fucking. It's really cheap. I'm yeah, remembering this wrong. I thought it was the the yeah, sewer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the clothes clothesline thing. Oh yeah. fuck, yeah. that was. Oh. As a kid, I was come like, inside. That was terrifying because oh she was out God. of her she mom's right sight there. for a second, ten feet from the house. The that's, classic that's parents' like fear, right? Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, I'm not actually a huge fan of the miniseries. Um, the reason I kind of put it on my list, and the reason I put it on my list where I did, which was at number nine, uh, was simply because of the power of Tim Curry's performance. Oh, he's amazing. Um, and it, he's so, so good in it. And again, it, it speaks to the power of Tim Curry as an actor to do something from like Frankenfurter to it, to like Pennywise the Cloud, I mean, uh, to uh, the Mr. Body and Clue, like yeah. all within a very yeah. kind of Fantastic. short period, mm-hmm. period of time and legend and all of these things. And uh, I think for me, again, it's I love the conceit of it. It's a bit long for me. Um, the, the difference between the kids and the adults, it doesn't really fly for me. And uh, I think as we were talking a little bit earlier, as soon as it turns into the big spider thing, yeah. I was just like, it didn't. I lost interest, and it all seemed too easy. And I think when you set up this big monster, and then you realize you can kill the monster by doing this one thing, if you really believe in it, I'm a bit like this doesn't feel earned. Right, that's a major uh, complaint story wise. But, but there are a lot of people who deeply, deeply respond to it. I think I was also never really scared of it. Okay. What age were you when you saw the movie? Probably eleven or twelve. Oh wow! Well, you must have been well versed. I don't know. Uh, most I people clowns, I know clowns who don't really freak as a... me out. Oh, okay. Like yeah. deformed women. Like it, it's essentially female figures. Really, really terrify me. Body horror stuff. Yeah, well, just even like a like a ghost woman. Ghost women like really scare me. So. Interesting. But yeah, clowns not so much. But um, Tim Curry's amazing. Mm-hmm. Do you guys remember um, Devin? You had this creepy voice that you used to always scare <gasps> Danny with. Which one? The, it's a child's world now or something. Oh, <laughs> you right, remember right, right. I don't even remember the root of it's that. A, it's a child. It's a child's world, Danny. Child's world. But I don't, I don't even, I don't even remember what the reference I think the joke was you were, it was, it you were was playing some kind of hip, hypnotized child or a toy. And yeah, I it was a clown toy really... in that fucking hostel or like, like utopian. <gasps> right. like the, Right oh, yeah. in West Virginia, in West Virginia, like, Virginia. Mountain, freaky like baby room yeah. <laughs> shit. Uh, really spooky. Um, oh man, it's a child. yeah. You, you had to like you started getting like really out of hand in the car or in the van. You were like, please stop, please. Yeah, it was freaking me out. I was in poor mental health that entire trip. But one thing I'd like to mention, because in this podcast, Devin admits to not having read a lot of Stephen King. So we're on tour, and everyone, we all hit up a bookstore somewhere, and Devin goes in to buy Hitchhiker's Guide, and there's some kind of bibliophile in line beside him. And the guy, remember, he asked you if you read much? You're like, ah, oh, not much. Just every once in a while to pass the time. And the guy's like, a real reader spends his time. On every page, <laughs> and then just like leaves. <laughs> you're like, I should go back and yell at that guy. That was really rude. Yeah, real asshole. asshole. Yeah, real. It was. It was. You're buying exactly. a book. What more does he want? It was the Dirk Gently <laughs> book too. That's more of like a. Yeah, that's right. That's it like wasn't a cool B side. Oh, it wasn't uh, Hitchhiker's. Dirk Gently. Yeah. Sorry to get off track. 
All right. Well, that's my fault. I brought up the fucking voice, but but I mean, Andrew, as you were mentioning earlier, it is Andrea's scariest. Oh yeah, film. yeah. it yeah. is my jam. It, it it hit me hard, and I, I think it's partially because again, the miniseries for all of its flaws was very very well cast. It's exactly how I picture oh, yeah. both the kids and the adults, and so again, the fact that the book is so humongous and the miniseries is way too long, but it's still too short because there's so much it had to cut out. I have a lot of. Uh, I have a lot of deleted scenes in my brain that never happened, but my brain is able to make them cinematic so easily because it was so well cast, because dairy is so easily visualizable. Mm -hmm. Um, I think when you're reading it and it starts out with these kids, you know, they're the losers club. These are kids who were bullied for whatever reason and they find each other and they come together and they start playing in the barrens. And then all of a sudden it falls to these losers who mainstream society has shunned and they save the fucking world. Like they save the town and it's a huge fight against good and good versus evil and I, when I heard that the remake was being made, I was like, oh, shit. If they're going to set these kids in the 80s and then have them fast forward to now when they're adults, like the Losers Club can look so different, you know. Yeah. It can be maybe a trans kid. It can be maybe like a kid with a with a disability that's maybe a bit bigger deal than a stutter, a stutter or something. Yeah, exactly. Uh, in the stills I've seen of the kids, it doesn't – it looks like they're just pretty much yeah. remaking it. Yeah, it's yeah. one of the kids from Stranger Things, right, who's like the lead? Is it? Yeah, the lead kid from Stranger Things, a little like rat faced dark hair boy. Oh, okay. Yeah. I think that's his name. <laughs> no, IMDb. Look up rat faced dark hair boy. boy. Yeah, he's going to be Richie Tozier, which yeah. is uh, odd to me because he doesn't seem. Uh, he's he's, he's no uh, he's no Seth Green. No, he's not. Anyway. Oh, was that the Seth Green character? Yeah. Oh, he was adorable in that. Yeah. I mean, it's also like a really grand conceit that you've got a creature who's able to shapeshift into whatever it is you're scared of. I'm kind of boggled that that doesn't appear in more horror movies, frankly. Yeah. The only, I think in 1984, the thought police know. They know what you're scared of most, so mm-hmm. when they interrogate you, they bring it into the room or mm-hmm. do whatever it is. It's a terrifying idea. It should yeah, be used but... more. <laughs> That's not the best adaptation. Uh, The William Hurt adaptation? Oh, I haven't seen the movie. Oh, it's not the best. But the I Love You scene is fucking great. Yeah. It's it's perfect. It's just, here's the letter. What's next? All right. Ten? No, we're at seven. So we're going to, this is going to be the last one. We're going to take a little break and come back and do our top six. Our number seven film is Misery. I thought that was going to be higher. Me too. That's a great movie. Well, you're all wrong. That was my number three. I love that movie. I love that movie so hard. I do yeah. too. Um, Although I always, and it's terrible to say, but I, I, I actually can't watch it. I think it's the only scene in his entire, or all of his adaptations I can't watch. I can't watch um, Kathy Bates' head bounce off that fucking typewriter. Oh. I can't do it. You're gonna say the hobbling. I definitely yeah, thought she no, yeah. was gonna no, say when I can she watch hobbles. That. Yeah, oh, no, watch that all day. No, because she well, she she sets it up, and and that's like the dialogue makes that moment more tense. But there is yeah. nothing to set up. Just this frantic fight, and then just Wham. bang. Yep, and just see like the her neck just fucking oh it's ah uh, oh uh. yeah it's rough. 
I don't like it. But for how good, great though. the casting is with Bates, I can't stand James Conn. Oh, I love him. Really? I think yeah. he's great. I love he him. drives me insane. Why? I don't want to throw him off a cliff. I don't know. Everybody has that one actor. My friend Tyler yeah. is Sean Penn. So I took him to see The Tree of Life and didn't know <laughs> Sean Penn was in it. So that was bad because it's like four hours long. Oh, shit. But uh, James Conn is just one of those guys. I just want him to... Stop acting. I want him really? to retire. Yeah, yeah no, I don't like him nowadays too much. Most of his recent stuff hasn't been fantastic. Although. So I could definitely watch He's her hobble him. And if, oh man, if they did what they did in the book, that would be even more grotesque. What did they do in the book? Cut off. So she cuts <gasps> off. Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, she doesn't just break the bones. I think Misery also works just really well as a very self-contained story. Um, and I think that's why it was actually able to be adapted and uh, was on Broadway as a Broadway play. And uh, the read cast was uh, Bruce Willis as the writer and Laurie Metcalf. Wow. And I, I saw I read some reviews of it because I was very curious. Apparently, Bruce Willis was not great. Laurie Metcalf, I think, actually got nominated for a Tony, but apparently she was like breathtaking in the awesome. role. So that was pretty cool to see. Uh, I find it inherently like super watchable. Um, oh yeah. And it's it's one of those things, it's almost deceptively too good yeah. because it's so good and it's so entertaining. I don't think you necessarily always pick up on all the craft and the subtleties that are at play in the film. Absolutely. Uh, because, yeah, it's just so watchable. But um, no, it makes I love it. a lot it. of natural light in Well, especially because it captures that feeling of winter so much, uh, like that blinding white light you get through yeah. your room. Uh, during the winter, um, like I love, like it's those little details that make it feel really tangible and tactile in a lot of ways. That it's really cool. For me, this film hits on two big notes, and and one of them is how Annie Wilkes is, for all intents and purposes, the kind lady next door. Mm-hmm. You would never expect her to be capable of what she was capable of, and she's just your number one fan. And so, for myself as a writer. And as a content creator, it's something that I've given a lot of thought about, especially as regard, you know, with our podcast growing in popularity, is I start feeling this weight. I start feeling the responsibility, like as the numbers rack up of listeners, that's more and more people that I feel accountable to, especially when I'm slow editing, getting it out. I, I, I'm not worried that somebody's going to, you know, chain me to a bed and hobble me to just finish the fucking episode. Yeah, but I do, I do feel... right now. <laughs> I do feel a, a sense of, of that kind of responsibility, and it, it it stagnates you creatively. And I think that this was very much Stephen King speaking about his rise in fame and popularity and his expectations. And and when you get negative fan mail, it you feel like you let someone down, and yeah. you, you can't take it to heart. But it's kind of hard not to sometimes. It's interesting how like when you start writing, you're in a vacuum. You're just doing it just for you, and then as you grow in popularity it can certainly it can certainly affect the quality of your writing we see that a lot with musicians and even with with filmmakers we see it and it it certainly is very very interesting that's a great point that that he's been able to sustain a unique uh, and 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 distinct voice uh a, a common voice throughout his work um I, that's a great point andrea yeah, um, yeah. it's like the demands of the job and the demands of his reader and the responsibility of that, and he has talked about that. And he also admitted recently that um, Annie Wilkes was a bit of a metaphor for cocaine and his addiction and his attempt to write himself into understanding that. Annie Wilkes is cocaine, is the quote. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Keeping him prisoner and, like, 
it, on the one hand, forcing him to write it, which he does want to do. Yep. But her methods are not yeah, the but most like, healthy. Yeah, just ending up taking so much away from him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I'm sad. I love when the uh, when she brings home like the highest quality of paper, and he's like, "This this smudges." And yeah, she's yeah. so upset, um, but she doesn't retaliate in that scene because she, she wants him she, to work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I and and I like the the variance in that. It's never it's never just her going off. Uh, she reacts in, in so many different ways, and it makes Kathy Bates' performance so. Um, Laird because she has the opportunity to play, um, you know, someone who's been scorned, so to speak, someone who's uh, who despises someone else, someone who yeah. truly loves somebody else. Um, well, they give her character a real internal logic. Yeah. Um, and you can have internal logic within a character, particularly particularly an antagonist to the um, extent that you have in Annie Wilkes. Or it can be someone like Freddy Krueger, like, you're an Elm Street kid, I'm going to murder you in your dreams. And those things can both work, but I think you can see the degrees of subtlety and what it evokes in everyone when you do it to the extent of an Annie Wilkes. Yeah. Um, but I do think there are a lot of filmmakers who tend to forget about that and uh, right. and love, like, the scene or they love the aesthetic of something, so they kind of play towards that. Mm-hmm. Rather than letting a narrative emerge and inform everything else around it, uh, which is kind of the thing that frustrates me, but that's one of the reasons why I love Misery. Yeah, it would be really dismissive and a shame if for people to say, well, Annie Wilkes is crazy because there's so much <laughs> more happening with her. Yeah. She has a, a purpose... And completely like it's not. And just, a lot of the um, story is, is Paul Sheldon, along with us, the audience, figuring out how that works so that he can subvert it and attempt to break free. Yeah, he starts to. Yeah. As he gains more information about her yeah. responses, he starts. He thinks he manip- tries yeah. to manipulate her, yeah. Yeah. Uh, which is, again, it's just ratcheting it all up. Has the Academy Award been mentioned? No. What uh, did it win? Yeah. Kathy Bates. Best yeah. actress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I did not know that. Well deserved. Yeah, Absolutely. I also want to mention <clears throat> that I realized after, because I compiled my list before you guys. I sent it out first before I got anyone else's list, and I had Misery. Um, where did I have it? <coughs> I had it at number nine. Jesus. And to be honest, I'm I'm 100% wrong. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> Moving it up? I can't. You know, it's already fixed. We're already doing the show. Uh, but... The reason that the film is is it's always deceiving to me because it's one of those films that I don't often put on, but if it's on somewhere, I'm stuck there. Yeah. And I always forget that. I always forget the quality uh, of it. And and just from a filmmaking standpoint, it's incredibly responsible and it's incredibly um I don't know, um, understated in its elegance, uh, but also from from just a story, from a piece. Um, it's 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 fantastic. It's it's a great great flick, and I think it should. If I didn't sully it by putting it at nine, Danny, you had it at three. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it would have been much higher. So I had it at three too. Yeah. Um, just one final point I'll make for our listeners out there. Um, oh, you had it at four, Dan. Oh, yeah, I have it at four. Uh, if anyone hasn't read Gerald's Game, to maybe check that out as a companion piece, because it's mm. about um, a woman, well, her and her husband are role-playing, but she gets cuffed uh, to the bed, and then he has a heart attack and dies. And the rest of the book is how the hell she's going to figure this out, because she's in a cottage, and yeah. she's handcuffed to a bed. <laughs> it's kind of, a, I think, a companion piece, because it's so similar psychologically and claustrophobic, but... 
There's, there's a movie in the works, yeah? Really? Yeah, yeah. They're going to make is. that movie? They're going to. They announced the director, and everybody's like, whoa, that guy. And I was like, uh, I don't know that guy. Do you know who it is? I don't know who it is. Uh, interwebs, Devin. Do it, Devin. Yeah. One thing I did want to say about Gerald's game, there's a great, um, I was watching a lecture with Stephen King. Where was it? It might have been, no, it wasn't the Boston one. It wasn't the Lowell one. It was another one. Um, but he, uh, he, <laughs> he talks about writing that, that book and he's having trouble. He's trying to work out how she's going to escape. And, uh, he calls his son up and says, okay, I'm going to tie you to the bed. And uh, and like gives him instructions on how to how to untie or like how he wants him to do it, like shimmy over and try and push the mattress and like break the glass and do all this elaborate shit. And then of course like Tabitha comes in and is like, "What the fuck is going on?" Did- and I think his oldest is Owen. No, his uh, oldest old, is Owen or Joe. Joe, yeah. So, so I think it was Joe. Joe's like, oh, just some of dad's shit. <laughs> and I just love that story. Um, yeah, it was definitely Joe Hill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, it's so interesting. Like, he he does that. It doesn't work what he was trying with his son. Mm. So he spent, like, a whole bunch of time researching, you know, okay, well, I'm going to have to find something else because this won't work. Like, mm. as much as he, for example, doesn't, get too hung up in plotting or figuring out where a, a story ends. I do like that, um, like we said earlier about Carrie, he didn't think it was it was up to par with the teenage, the female teenager's experience, and he was wrong. In this case, he, he again still went with his gut and said, I got to figure out a practical way, somewhat. It's not the most practical way, but, um, you know, to make this work. So, yeah, very cool. Gerald's Game, uh, directed by Mike Flanagan. Oh, that's the guy who did Oculus. Oh, really? Maybe all right. All right. So we're going to come back and do our top six and then get the hell out of here. All right. So we're back and let's do our top six, ladies and gentlemen. I'm so excited. I know. What's six? (laughs) I'm so excited. I know. <laughs> Keep it down. <laughs> I love you. Quiet, I know. Quiet down over here. <laughs> Number six is Pet Cemetery. Yeah. All right. I don't wanna be buried in a pet cemetery. Oh, the Ramon <laughs> song. song. Yeah, I yeah, listen to that's that all right. the time. That's a great song. Yeah, I think I have like played it so much and rated it so high on my iTunes, my phone like just auto fills it. So yeah. here so you go, King Alex. Has commissioned two major rock bands to. Produce material for him. He's got Pet Cemetery. Yeah. And he's got Who Made Who by ACDC. He's got ACDC throughout uh, that fucking yep. film. Yeah, he that was the height of his cocaine use. Apparently, <laughs> it was. Yes. Yeah. You can really see that in his cameo in Maximum Overdrive <laughs> when yeah. the ATM calls him an asshole. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. Pet f- Cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, he just tried to go he, he snorted the he's ATM. Yeah. That's why he's getting cash out. <laughs> Let's be honest. At cemetery. Another very apocalyptic I want $1, ending. $1,000 in one. Well, not apocalyptic, but a very harsh ending. 
Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah. And um, again, as I mentioned earlier, this is probably my scariest film. Um, I didn't finish it for the longest time. And then when I got to university, um, some friends of mine around Halloween were like, oh, they were talking about it. It was like, oh, that I just remember that film really scaring me. And they were like, no, it's not too bad. It's kind of goofy, but there's a lot of great stuff in it. We should watch it. We should watch it. So we went down to the Blockbuster video, as there was still those in those days. Mm. And uh, we rented it and we watched it and I watched it and I was like, oh, I'm okay. I'm okay. This was fun. The Zelda parts really freaked me out still, but I was like, no, I'm okay. This was fun, guys. You were all right. And then I went to bed and had nightmares for like almost two weeks straight. It was like totally triggered something in the back of my head, some like primal thing. And even now, I've watched it a couple times since. And now what I do, because I really do like that movie. There's, uh, you know, don't go down by that road there. <laughs> like, just I lo- like I love all of those things in it. And I love how it's kind of cheesy and goofy. Um, but it's great ideas in it. And uh, every time those Zelda scenes come up, and now I can anticipate them, I just leave the room. So. Right Andrew, you also, both you and Alex had this at number five. Why does this one stand out so much for you? I think for me, it's such a simple concept. Mm. It's again, you read it and you're like, well, why hasn't everyone else done this again and again? It's so simple and perfect in its simplicity. Uh, I really like how within Stephen King's canon, this is a medical doctor. This is a very white collar, educated guy who moves to this area of Maine that, you know, his next door neighbor is you know, Judd. He's yeah. like a total old boy, and and then they really get along really well. But but there's always kind of that that distance between them because Judd has an understanding of you know some things you have to leave alone. And as a doctor, you know you're kind of playing God. You 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 save people who maybe should have died. Like nature should have taken them out. So it's it's all going against nature. Um, and then in the end, as Dan was just saying, you know, it's a very nihilistic ending. It's just he hasn't learned anything. All of this heartache, all of this that has happened, like the loss of his friend, the loss of his son, the loss, total deterioration of his life and his family. And he still chooses to roll the dice. And, you know, I'd rather get dragged into the grave with my dead wife than have to live without her. It's kind of romantic, but it's also kind of really nihilistic and fucked up. You know, it reminds me, and it always has, and I, it's, it's definitely not a fair uh, assessment, but, you know, whatever, it's my show, I can say it. Um, reminds me of the scene again, because we know he likes the book uh, in, in I Am Legend, where uh, um, Neville refuses to, to bury his, or take his wife to uh, be thrown into that giant fucking pit. Yeah. Their daughter's already presumably in there, and he, so he runs out into the woods and uh, frantically buries her in the woods, and of course she comes back and knocks on his door. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's terrifying. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I just like anything that has that kind of energy. I, I, I really, well, it's really it's do. It's most basic, like human emotions. Um, you know, I'm sure the older we're all getting, the more we've lost people or are losing people we care about and things we've cared about. And so the notion that there is a one chance to bring that back, um, you know, at almost what cost it's, it's such a deeply personal thing. Mm-hmm. And I think it speaks to everyone in a different way. And, and I think that's why we, we all grapple with it and why mm-hmm. it affects us. Cause on it, like honestly in our heart of hearts, if I lost someone I really loved suddenly, I'd probably, I'd, I'd, if I could hike, I'd probably go up to that Indian burial ground. Of course. Absolutely. I think that, one of the things I like most about these Stephen King adaptations, his books too, is like thinking, "What would I do in this yeah. situation? Am I any better than these people?" Like in the mist or in Pet Cemetery. I don't know if you guys watch Black Mirror, but there was an episode like this. Did you see that one? I don't think I saw that one. 
Um, it's, I'll be quick about it, but it's, the premise is, um, when a loved one dies, you can buy this service that, um, will text you using their vernacular. And then later as the service is updated, it will talk to you on the phone using their voice because you uploaded any and all clips you might have of them on video. And then it goes to phase three in which they send an actual sentient being over that looks like the person programmed to act like the person, but it doesn't breathe. It's not a real person. But would you do that having lost a loved one? Yeah. Um, but the problem is, it's not enough of that person. It's only whatever the technology. It's like the superficial thing. Yeah. yeah. Same with uh, in Pet Cemetery. It draws from a lot of the um, the same um, sort of feelings as as like uh, Needful Things or like you know that that sort of old uh, monkey's paws kind kind of. Um, um, he's, he's visited a few times, right? Like it's the one thing you want, but you know. Or even sometimes they came come back, which is on your list, Devin. Again, mm-hmm. a, another example of, you know, he has the opportunity to bring his brother back at the end. And he mm-hmm. doesn't. Or rather, his brother chooses not to come back and offers to take him with him, right? Is that how that works? Yeah, Something just, like that. Just kind of like leaving bad things as they are, like mm-hmm. leaving, you know, leaving well enough, sort of, alone. Kind of, kind of uh, you know, is always the, the, the right course of action. And, and it's, you know turns into a real zombie nightmare real fucking quick. <laughs> yeah. I, I also think it's one of, in my kind of estimation, and again, I haven't read very many Stephen King novels, um, but this is one of the ones I have because Andrea lent it to me, I think, a couple years ago or something. And uh, it's one of those ones that I think they work really well in tandem with each other. I yep. actually find the film to be a very faithful adaptation in a lot of ways. Yes, they omit I stuff. I think what, probably the biggest one, if you guys want to think on this, is probably the Wendigo element the kind of you know the spirit in the woods that is making all those like terrifying noises but i can see why yeah. they didn't add it in especially because of budget in the late 80s uh, and they do hint at it very subtly and i think if you're a fan of the film it's a great like i really enjoyed reading it because it illuminated a couple things didn't change any of my opinions it just um elevated some things of importance a little bit more but um again very impressed because did stephen king write the screenplay he was more heavily involved yeah. in the making of this movie than any other movie, he yeah. said. And he had to really, really fight to keep the ending. Yeah. Because in the 80s, it was tough to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It makes the, sense. The only uh, screenplay writer uh, credited on yeah. the film, so... Yeah, that would make sense because it does feel very, like even just the, the plot beats, everything in that film is even some of the dialogue I remember sounding very, very familiar. And the other thing I was thinking, I remember, uh, again, that first night when I watched uh, three quarters of it. Um, I, I one of my favorite movies at the time when I was ten was My Cousin Vinny, um, which Fred Gwynn, who plays Judd, is yeah, also yeah, yeah. in. So I was like, "He's that Judge man. It'll be okay, guys." Yeah. And then, and then Judd got his like fucking like mouth slashed and his with uh, ankle slashed, and you know, just and I was like, "Oh, maybe we should turn this off." Yeah. <laughs> so I wonder if the Kill Bill scene is referencing that. When Judd gets sliced, oh, isn't there a the, really similar slice in Kill Bill? Yeah, there's a um, Achilles. I wonder. Well, they also cut. have a really great version of that in Urban Legend. Yeah, there's a lot of movies that do that. Maybe Urban Legend is inspired by Pet Cemetery. I wouldn't put it past Urban Legend. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, that's, I definitely don't want that to ever happen yeah. to me. Yeah, Pet Cemetery packs a lot of uh, a lot of themes with with 
a lot of grace. Like yeah. for example, the scene that uh, the scene that terrifies Alex, and I love to torment her with this. Obviously, the scene with Zelda in it. A, a lot of people responded to that Faculty of Horror episode we did, where they said, "Oh my God, she scares me so much too." And I, I hear that again and again that she scares people so much because because they made her very visually eerie. But if you think about her role in the film was basically to posit uh, the main guy's wife. God, I can't remember these Tasha characters. The yeah. main guy's name is Lewis. <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah. Lewis Creed and his wife's name was... You got it? Uh, oh. Don't remember. Anyway, basically his wife grew up with a very sickly sister. And uh, it, it's an image that haunts her as her sister, you know, uh, twisted up by this disease. And so she has an understanding, which Judd echoes, that dead is better. But um, but Lewis doesn't have that understanding. So it's kind of a husband and wife thing that, you know, she, she has to be away from the house when he does what he does. So I, I thought that was, that was really well done, how it all plays within the family. Oh, I just wanted to say quickly um, that actually I, I do really like Pet Cemetery, but I prefer Pet Cemetery 2. Mm. I Why do you say that so proudly. Like this, I, no. I, I initially started <laughs> that. guilty pleasures are fine, but you proclaim <laughs> it with such no, no. And that's what I thought it was. I thought I was like, this is a guilty pleasure film. I, like no one likes it, but I like it. And then I've watched it a couple times. Like I watch it once a year at least. Um, wow. And I actually now I'm like, it's legitimately one of my favorite films. Huh. Um, I think it's such a smart horror sequel in the way they take the mythology and they alter it slightly. And again, I just. Anthony Edwards is really fucking sexy, and uh, and uh, Clancy Brown is terrific in it. Love him um, everything. Great performances, great. Yeah. So I don't know if anyone out there has not seen Pet Cemetery Two, but digs Pet Cemetery. I just really recommend it. Same director too, Mary. Um, Mary Lambert. Mary Lambert. Thank you. Yeah. The, the um, it's number two with the the uh, scene with the the dirt bike. Uh, yes. isn't it? Where yeah. he's, he's Clancy putting, Brown is just oh, like oh. that that scene really uh affected me as a kid. And Edward Furlong and uh, Yeah. Ooh, okay, I have to see this it's, now. I I truly truly enjoy it. Yeah. I didn't realize Devin, you have this at number 5 as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's um, what that's what's pushed it over. It's You guys all vote high on Pet Cemetery. Mm-hmm. I like this. It's a classic. It's great. One I thing I'll it. add um the hardcover of this has um, the front cover is absolutely gorgeous. I don't know if any of you have seen it. It's a screaming cat. cat. Yeah, it's really, really good. That's that's a scary cat. It used to frighten me when I was a kid. So I didn't read Pet Cemetery until way later on. I was like thirteen or fourteen. Yeah. Interesting. Of all of his movies, it's a it's a reasonably Hollywood movie that is yep. compact. It yep. has all, all the scares and all the tropes of a classical conventional horror movie with all of the feel good small town Stephen King charm. It's just a hit. And one of my yep. favorite pieces of trivia about it was um, that apparently, and this has been argued, uh, but apparently Bruce Campbell was initially offered the Lewis Creed role initially. Yeah, yeah. Oh, really? That as well. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I tweeted that at him like years ago, and I was like, why'd you turn down Pet Cemetery at Groovy Bruce? And he tweeted back at me, which was so exciting. What do you say? Who said I didn't, who said I turned it down? Something like that. Uh, and I was yeah. just like, well, that doesn't help me. No. Yeah. But you acknowledged me as a person for a moment. <laughs> we got to go back and do another Evil Dead turnaround because you know how many panelists on our show are pissed that we only a had lot. a three-person panel for that? Yeah. In any case. All right. Numero Sank, 1976's Carrie. That's, that's lower than I thought. but hmm. yeah. It's starting to get interesting, isn't it? 
Danny, I think, has seen it now, but I'm trying to keep it from everyone else. Wow, Carrie. All yeah. right. Well, Carrie's at five. Wants to start. I love this film. Yeah, I really, really I love do. It so hard. Nancy Allen seemed to be a lot more prominent in De Palma's work than I had originally expected because she's in Blowout too, right? So is Travolta. Mm-hmm. Um, and, Blowout is my other favorite Brian De Palma. Yeah. That and Carrie to me are just fantastic. Yeah. Well, save it for the De Palma. Gosh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Um, I thought it was such a, an interesting film to be written by a male. It was his it was his first novel, and it's uh, it's insofar as as we were saying before, we're not looking at it all from Carrie's viewpoint. We're looking at it predominantly through the eyes of Susan Snell, and yep. you've got this, you know, the microcosm of small town Stephen King Landia is even smaller because we're at a high school, which is a very specific. Um, time in people's lives and a very specific norms and mores that go along with that. So you've got someone like Susan Snell who has a really rare, bizarre, um, introspective ability to realize that she commands a whole lot of social capital within high school. Because high school girls are popular because, you know, they play these sports, they're whatever they are, maybe class president, they have a handsome boyfriend, and so... She feels for the way this girl Carrie is being bullied and she has something to offer her. And when I was younger, I used to watch this film and find it so weird that like you're sending her to prom with your boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Like, why don't you just kind of like go with her to prom? And it, granted, I'm coming yeah, from well, it. Well, they couldn't because you had to have a date. That well, was like yeah. The... yeah. Back then, that, that was that was how it was. Yeah, so that was insane. That was kind of odd to me that he would just kind of loan out poor dummy Tommy. <laughs> Which I love that he's just <laughs> macking all over her too, you know, for lack of better terminology. Yeah, you're my date good. tonight. Yeah. Honey. So let's, let's go as far as you will let me go. <laughs> no problem here. Yeah. Even though I'm doing this as a favor to my girlfriend. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So Ultimately, at its heart, I feel like Carrie is um, this tremendous superpower given to a girl who has zero power. She's disenfranchised yeah. in mm-hmm. so many different ways, which is what makes it a really interesting mix. Absolutely. And I think another one of the elements that makes Carrie really powerful is the things that Carrie wants are not huge, big, unattainable things. She wants to either somewhere on the spectrum of being left alone or accepted. Yeah. Um, you know, she'd like to look nice. She likes, you know, she realizes I like makeup, like that whole kind of silly scene when she's in the drugstore, like trying on lipstick and, and it's intercut with the boys trying on tuxedos Tuxedos, and doing those like fast paced stuff. And, um, you know, wanting to be invited to these things. And I think, those were all uh, things that felt very tangible when I was a teenager and still, you know, in an adult world, still feel very tangible. And, um, you know, the fact that when you if I'm sure a lot of people have had something in their life where you feel like you almost have it. And then for whatever reason, it gets taken away from you um, and you get angry and you get hurt and you get upset. And mm-hmm. um, I think what kind of um, tempers carries vi- like her own violence and her own revenge and, and the bloodshed that she causes is the scene when she gets back to her house and she's in the bath and she's just kind of trying to wash the blood off of yeah. her and she's kind of sobbing and it, it feels like she's not like she's far too human for us to not identify with her. Um, and uh, it's still something that I get super emotionally involved with it every time I watch it. And um, Piper Laurie, who plays her mother is um, fantastic. fantastic and truly horrifying. And uh, I, I think, you know, as a parent, uh, I think each parent, uh, I think each parent kind of has a certain degree of that where you're trying to protect your child mm-hmm. so much. And as a kid that can feel really oppressive 
Um, and, you know, because they're a parent and you're a child, you can't have a dialogue about it. It's like, I'm the parent. I know it's best. This is how it is. And so Margaret White is this kind of, you know, a horror film, you know, realization of that fear, again, put through this religious lens. And, um, you know, it just it feels all too real um, in so much of it. And uh, I, I think the humanity in it is really, really powerful. Yeah, well, we can all remember our high school pariah. Right. And it's always a bit embarrassing to look back and be like, what? What was a, what was our problem with her again? Yeah. Oh, nothing. That's right. She had a weird religious mom. Like, yeah. So unfair. But you see it. You see it through through everyone's eyes, especially yeah. Susan, who, it, you know, was is pretty actively and actively trying to make a difference. Right. Yeah. It's yeah. It's heartbreaking to think now that. Well, at least for me, that I never did anything or said anything. You know, in middle school, there was this girl named Danielle, and for some reason, everyone called her Dookie. I have no idea why, and everyone hated her. And she was just a normal person, yeah. you know, not to be ableist or anything. But it was, she was a normal person, and for some reason, she became this target of hatred. So I felt like I could never talk to her or say anything. Yeah, but like it. So Carrie is, a, of course, it's a really accurate portrait of high school. You know, politics and popularity, the forced interaction, and the allegiances that happen. Yeah, and like, I just wanted to mention, like, well, I love the movie, but that scene where um, the lead mean girl, um, she can, she convinces yeah. John Travolta to yeah. uh, kill, yeah. a pig, kill a pig, yeah. the weird half blowjob. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Billy, Billy, I really hate I, Carrie I White. I really hate her so much. Yeah. Yeah. Like halfway through, I really hate Carrie White. He's like, yeah. What does that have to do with anything? Yeah. <laughs> then he realizes later, oh. Yeah. Oh, we're yeah, going to yeah. get her. But um, I don't know if any of you have seen Never Been Kissed. Yes. Yeah. Not like I'm not putting it in the same league at all. But you notice how at the end it's a, a complete homage to, yeah. except it's dog food, I think, uh, yes. instead of blood on yeah, Lily Sabinski. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, there's an Adam Sandler um, album, comedic album. I'm not a fan of Sandler. It's called They're All Gonna Laugh at You. Yeah, which is an exaggerated version of Carrie's mom. Yeah. yeah, mom, I'm going out. No, they're all going to laugh at you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and even um, I think in uh, Mean Girls, they you know try to preempt that when um, Lindsay Lohan's character is voted prom queen or whatever it is, she gets up there and snaps the tiara in half and kind of effectively like ends this kind of prom tradition. Mm. And 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 oh, is that why she okay? Something like I don't know. Something like that. But um, I think uh, I think when you look at these people who are the, you know, quote unquote, social pariahs of middle school or high school or grade school or whatever it is, um, it's because they represent something other than what we've all kind of been taught to achieve as yeah. we slowly enter adulthood. It's like it should, you know, in a lot of ways, especially as we were growing up, maybe not so much now, but it was super like heteronormative. It was very like, oh, yeah. you know, middle class kind of idealism. And um, Carrie White, uh, just her being who she was mm -hmm. Represented the antithesis to that, you know, single mother, super religious, not progressive, uh, mousy, poor, poor wore clothes that didn't have labels on them, yeah. and um, you know, it was just torn apart. You know, she she was doomed to fail almost from the start until she could have gotten out of that house if she would have ever been let out of that house. So yeah, it's it's pretty it's it's crushing if you feel like you identify with Carrie, and it's crushing if you felt like at any point in your life you ever identified as a bully. Yeah. So. Oh God. <laughs> uh, no, I was never a bully. I was bullied. Okay. But yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's uh, fuck. And yeah, I forgot what you mentioned there. Like, I forgot what a transgression it was in high school to not have the right clothing. I remember yeah. now. Like, if oh you yeah. Have the right tags. 
Yeah. Not only that, the right clothing. If you didn't develop <coughs> at the right time, yep. everyone's got boobs and you're behind the curve. Be, I swear to God, like I had seen Carrie before I entered middle school and then my middle school had a pool. So there was a big change room thing. Mm. And that was the site of the most hor- horrific bullying Oh yeah, That's man! Not to be like so essentialist, scary. but like in my experience, the females were so fucking cruel to each other. At least with the guys, like there was one guy who didn't grow any pubic hair, and like <laughs> everyone was like, "Hey, bald cock, how's it going?" But it was sort bald of affectionate. <laughs> but the way that some of the women talked to each other, they like there were eating disorders, yeah. there were like fights, there was like it was just so cruel. Yeah. So I don't know. I can't imagine what that must have been like. It was great. I'd go back in a second. <laughs> oh man, people who look back fondly on high school, I think they have they're missing something. Oh yeah, yeah, something's wrong. Yep. Yeah. I really hate Carrie White. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Any other thoughts on Carrie before we move along, ladies and gentlemen? Children of all ages. I don't reckon we want to talk about the sequel or the remake at all. No, we Let's do not. not. even dignify them I guess mention. just how crazy it is that it almost didn't exist at all except for yeah. Tabitha King. He did toss yeah. it out and it was physically in the garbage. Yeah. She rescued it. That's pretty yeah. amazing. And also the amount of money that he made on the uh, yeah, on the, the fucking... Uh, the advance on it. Yeah. Not on, but the, the advance on the... Um, paperback. Paperback. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what got him out of poverty. They yeah. gave him something like hundred thousand dollars yeah. back in like seventy something. Yeah, he got twenty grand for the hardcover. Right, he got two hundred thousand dollars. Yeah, because uh, Mario Puzo's the heart. Uh, the Godfather had gone for four hundred thousand, yeah. and everyone thought that was a one-off. But the paperback market in the seventies and eighties was so large oh, yeah. that yeah, just out of poverty overnight, him and Tabitha like I imagine they they were pretty relieved about that. Yeah, they bought a Ford Pinto. <laughs> It's just a little Wikipedia anecdote that I saw here that I think is kind of funny. Uh, Sissy's face in the the final scene demanded to be buried under under the ground. They're, they're like, no, like like Sissy, it's just your hand. Like we'll just we'll get a stun hand. It's fine. Whatever. She's like, no, put me in the ground. Really? That's amazing. Demanded it, and uh, Brian De Palma wouldn't even do it, so her her husband did. Apparently. That's amazing. <laughs> Probably couldn't get her? insurance. Yeah, yeah. Is that, you know, she's the star of the film, yeah. sort of. Um, moving along, or more thoughts? Good. That's it for me and Carrie. Okay. I'm kind of sad that East isn't here for this next one because I know that we would break into song together, and uh, and it's not going to happen. And I'm kind of sad about that. I don't know that it's not going to happen. Break into song. Look by at myself your crystal when ball, I'm sick. Brandon. Maybe we will know it's a we'll song know. and sing oh, it. Oh, you will know this song. But um, number four is "Stand by Me." All right, "Stand by Me." So originally called "The Body," which is a terrible title uh, with the short story or the novella. Why? The body? Yeah. Well, I mean, they're going to find a body, but um, I just feel like. The body itself was beside the point. What? It was more like a journey of self-discovery and stuff. I know they like found it and like it was a big deal because they stood up to the older guys. But... but but the point of the title is that it isn't the point. You know, they're calling it the body because the entire reason why they're going out on this whole thing is because of the body. But then that's not not all what the story's about. I don't so know. That's I why like... it's called the body. Yeah, it's okay. like a fun twist. You know. Hmm. I don't think the body is beside it. the point at all. Yeah. All right. Well, it's no secret that the lads on this panel definitely push this one up. I think um, myself and East both have it at number two. Danny has it at three. Um, Devin has it at six. 
Now, I have it at number two because I'm giving into nostalgia a little bit. I know that this is a coming in a coming of age story for boys, uh, or, and ironically enough, this was shown to me by my mom, who I you know didn't really she wasn't a huge movie person comparative to some of the other people in my family. So it was interesting to uh, I remember sitting down and watching it with her for the first time. So maybe that's something there as well. But um, I I wonder sometimes as as we sit here now and we talk about nostalgia and I joke about you know wanting to break into song and then leaving Adria hanging. Sorry about that. I'm okay. If you you know if you want, I'll sing, I'm okay. I'll sing the entire song <laughs> to you if you want. No. Um, I'm locking myself in the bathroom. Never yeah. singing that song again. Um. Well, you cut to the middle of the song. Who does that? I'm oh, I, that's where I would have started. Oh no, you're all wrong. In any case, um, I just wonder if, say, for example, the Benny King song, the uh, Richard Dreyfuss uh, monologue, and and um, the cast and their significance as they've gotten older, um, has all played into this nostalgia a little bit that that's blurring my vision. I'm I'm not certain, but what I can tell you is. We were doing, or we were going to do a panel on uh, the Goonies and Stand By Me, because a lot of people wanted to do a versus with that. We got a bunch of emails about that, and we're still thinking about doing it. I didn't have to rewatch Stand By Me for that episode, because I, it, I, it's, it stays with me. Yeah. Um, whereas, like for example, the Goonies, if I don't see it for a couple of years, it's like a fucking cloud in my head. It's mm-hmm. like it's like the kids in in it when they grow up. Like it, I can't remember what the fuck is going on. You're having a really hard time with that microphone, Chief. Happening. I've got it. It's fine, guys. Everything's <laughs> fine. Let's make fun of you. Bullying. Mm. Um. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, so I, uh, I know I love the film, and it was a very personal choice to put it at two. Um, but I completely understand, say, for example, Alex and Andrea, you guys didn't have it on your list. Devin, you had it lower on your list. Um, There's just a lot of moments in the film that shaped me, mm. you know, so so I think that it's an important film for me. And I think it also does hold up better than a lot of those coming of age stories for boys. So, uh, Danny, any thoughts? You had it pretty high as well. Uh, yeah, Um I think, well, I read the story when I was 12, which is weird because I was the same age as the guys in the story. And so I just, I found, you know, it's an adventure story. It's nice. Like the part where they're about to get hit by the train and then the scene with the leeches where Chris won't take the leech off Gordon's balls, you know, like clear lines are being drawn, you know, masculine performativity as they get older and start to kind of discover the opposite sex or whatever. Stuff like that. and But then now, when I see the movie or read the thing as an older man, I completely... It's really poignant and sad. Like, the part at the end of the story where Gordon talks about how, you know, a couple years later, those Vern and Teddy were just another face in the hall at school. Yeah. Stuff like that, you don't really think about when you're a kid. And as I'm... Like, I'm 30 now, and yeah, dealing with what you were talking about, Alex, earlier, you know... Some people die. Some people are struggling with addiction. I think that like growing older is inherently sad, and some people deal with it better than others. For me, I don't deal with it very well. I'm like chronically nostalgic. All I think about is the Absolutely. times like when I was. I thought I was happy back then. I guess I don't know. So uh, uh, something like this, it's always going to be a moving target. It's always going to make me feel different. I think as I get older and older, maybe there'll be a time when I can't 
I don't think much of it. But yeah, it does mean a lot to me just because I did have those same experiences. I spent my childhood Absolutely. on the train tracks crushing pennies with my friends. Same. And uh, Andrea, yeah, like like you said, we had one female. Her name was Lindsay, and my last name is Lindsay. So the joke was, you guys are going to get married, and her name will be Lindsay Lindsay. And we'd be like, shut up. Fuck you guys. <laughs> Marriage is gross. You Ironically, know, rocks just, just filed the divorce paperwork this week. Oh, yeah. sorry. So I just felt like uh, there was so much of my own experience that I could relate to and, and, you know, getting beat up by the older kids, stuff like that. Uh, it's hard for me not to... I can't critically assess the movie because it's just too, you know, emotional yeah. for me. I find that the older kids, the more I watch it, um, are less appealing to me every time. I feel like um, Kiefer Sutherland has a great performance, don't get me wrong, but I feel as though um, none of those kids, much like my complaint about Nancy Allen's character in, in Carrie, it, none of those kids really have a clear kind of um, basis for anything that they're fucking doing. Like they, they're just, it's just, they're just kind of operating haphazardly. Mm-hmm. They're kind of just, yeah, uh, caricatures of fifties greasers and they're not as impressive. Like the cast, they're not very good actors. No. except for Sutherland. The other guys are pretty bad. Uh, I had such a crush on Ace. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh well. Well, he was sense. especially around that time mm-hmm. when when he was in the vampire movie. Mm-hmm. Oh god, he was a oh, we've been very good looking we've young man. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh my. Anyway, that's all I have for Stand By Me. Right. I don't know if anybody else has anything. Yeah, Devin, you want to offer anything up here? I, I just feel as though I don't want to. It's it's so high. I don't want to like pat it on the back too much. Like clearly, it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, somehow go out and see it. Definitely. Devin? I don't I don't know. I mean I kinda missed out on a lot of um a lot of these these types of uh sort of childhood um uh adventures. I don't know. Um like I never went away I w- never went to like a sleepover camp during summer and I don't know oh, uh, I never did. the friends that I had were not really the type to like we would go over to each other's houses okay. and, and stuff like and that. Play video games? Yeah, yeah. Play a lot of video games. <laughs> And uh, it wasn't until high school that, like, I met people that did have more of that. Um, it, it was it was just we were a product of where we where we lived, right? Like Brampton, um, Ontario, is a very suburban place, a, a very suburban sprawl. Like you have to go. Yeah, Bramley you know, is Canada's first suburban city, I think. You right? have to go like forty five minutes on a bike in any direction to actually get anywhere interesting. So it just never really came up a whole lot, and I think. So I watched this movie not really from from uh, nostalgia, but just like like you know, um, I, I I don't know, like almost like I'll you know yep. want to to have something like that you know in my own childhood. It also has a scene kind of similar to uh, the one in um, Sandlot with the fucking dog in the junkyard. Oh yeah, you know. I feel as though there's a lot of, uh, yeah, exactly. I feel like there's a lot of um, standard kids movie tropes going on in this flick, but that doesn't make it any less special for me. And just seeing them walking along the the train tracks and like singing lollipop with their transistor radio. Yeah, yeah. singing along and 
It's like that was me as a kid. Yeah. You know. The sick balls thing is funny though because those little urban legends do happen when you're a kid and have uh-huh. a lot of oh, absolutely. neighborhood localized urban legends. Like oh, not yeah. only did, did the man train his dog to attack people, but he could attack specific body parts. And of yeah. course a little kid's gonna hear sick balls, even though nobody said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, come on. Yeah, I think it'll be interesting to see how this movie ages with generations who maybe don't remember pre-digital video game ages yeah. when your parents were just like, get the like fuck out of the, the house. <laughs> I don't yeah. care what it is you do. Just yeah. get be back for dinner and try not yeah. to rip your jeans. And so there was a big element of that. I failed at that. I love this movie. I don't. It wasn't on my list because it doesn't quite stack up thematically for me the way some of these other ones do. I'm looking at my list now and I'm like, Tommy Knocker's really folk. Maybe it should have been on my list because I do love it. And like, you're, you're right. Every time I come back to it, every single scene, I'm like, oh, I love this part. Oh, I love this part. There isn't anything I don't like about that yeah. film. Fundamentally, it is your classic kids coming of age story, but it's a dark one because yeah. it's yeah. coming of age about death. Yep. Now we've got our main protagonist in that one kid who lost his brother and he's invisible at home and he feels invisible. And for a kid who doesn't understand mortality, doesn't understand like what a bizarre and tragic thing that is to befall your family to him. Death was something that happened more to him than to his brother, yeah. you know? And so then they hear about this body and they're like, let's go find it. We'll be in the newspaper. We'll be heroes. Like yeah. it's all about us. Yeah. And it's not until toward the end of the film when a, uh, we're confronting bullies with a gun and yeah. I'll fucking kill you if you don't back off oh, right knife, now. And he has the gun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ace yeah. has a knife. The kids have the gun. That's yeah, right. Yeah. And when he pulls the gun on it, he's like, I've had enough and I yeah. will end you right here and now. And then when they actually find the body, it really dawns on them that this isn't about us at all. And I feel like that sets their whole journey in the framework of these are the kinds of memories that make up what life is. And yeah. like, I, I guess maybe that's a reason I didn't get into this is, is the themes are heavy, but they're also kind of lofty. What the hell is Will Wheaton's character's name? Gordon. Thank you. Gordy. Gordo. That's right. Yep. Actually, what you just talked about. um, yeah, he has a recurring nightmare where he's in his brother's bedroom and his father comes in and should says, have should you. have been you, yeah, Gordon. You, should have been you, which it's is terrifying. horrible. It's so dark. Because he knows that's how they feel. Yep. He's the dad. But if yeah. you got to choose between John Cusack and Will Wheaton, you're taking John Cusack. Like, Any Am I day. right? Yeah, of Any course. Day. So I don't blame the dad at all. Like, just say it. Like, it isn't until those that Teddy guy and Werner are asleep that Chris and Gordon can talk to each other just like the way they want to talk mm-hmm. to. Each. Chris admits about the time I think the mil- some money went missing and a teacher blamed him, but it wasn't him. He didn't yeah. do it. You mm-hmm. know? Stuff yeah. like that. Sorry, now I gotta like apologize to Will Wheaton. <laughs> sorry, Wesley. I wouldn't throw you out of bed, Will. Uh, sorry, not sorry though. Dog. Jerry O'Connell looks Jerry good O'Connell. these days. Yeah, he does uh, look good. Uh, my favorite. Jerry O'Connell performance is truly in Scream 2. Scream 2, yeah. yeah. I think I love you. Yeah. And then he gets crucified by yeah. his uh, fraternity, and then he gets shot. I love when Nel- Nev Campbell puts the fucking hand on his chest to stop uh, the blood. I love that. It's And then if you realize... That's one of the best uh, that I've ever seen that done, actually. Yeah. And then if you realize, uh, in the third film, Sidney Prescott is wearing the um, uh, his fraternity necklace. necklace. And she'll like hold it when she gets scared and like rub it. Like, I know, he was such a good boyfriend. I did not notice that. <laughs> All right, what's next? Uh, well, it certainly isn't 1408, which is the one I was looking at for some reason. 
we didn't talk about that before, but actually both uh, you, Danny, and and Alex, you had that on your list. Yeah, by the way. I mean, the only thing, I mean, I just really love the first 20 or so minutes of that film. Mm. Right before they get in the hotel room, particularly when Sam Jackson shows up and is basically trying to dissuade yeah. uh, John Cusack from going in and like the bargaining he does. Like it's those are like great tension building scenes. Yeah. The second he gets into that hotel room, it just becomes a mess. I feel like both <laughs> goes around at Samuel Jackson and and John Cusack in a Stephen King film together have been fucking shit. Like, Cell was garbage, man. Like, I couldn't even make it to the end of that thing. The book was great. Yeah, the book was good. Eli Roth said he was going to direct it, but then he didn't. But then he didn't. In any case. I'm sure it would have been bad anyway. Yeah. Still would have been bad. Okay, what's next? Number three, The Dead Zone. Now, Devin, you had this number one on your list, so can you kick us off, sir? Uh, absolutely. I just rewatched it last night, too, uh, so it's very fresh. Um... I, I don't know, just just uh, uh, really um, compelling and and different uh, kind kind of uh, kind of thriller. Like the, I like the physical contact um, to to um, uh, to get these these telepathic uh, uh, visions. Like that that's necessary. Um, they I don't, I don't know. They use that uh, a lot to to kind of build up tension when he's when he's initially trying to solve these crimes and they're just bringing him stuff from the scene and he's just he's having trouble. But then you know they make him uh, hold hold the hand of the um, the dead body uh, at the the one point and it, yeah. it all uh, comes to him. Um, there's a couple of things like we've talked about. There, there's a couple of things that obviously could have been done better. Yeah, uh, could have been done more gracefully. It does kind of. Uh, Telegraph its its ending pretty yep. pretty badly. Um, yeah, thereof, yeah. He like puts a button in his hand, and it's like, okay, well, shit, this guy's got some got some demons. Then, like, yeah. Um, but but yeah, I don't know. It's it's um, it's just just a very interesting and and different kind of of uh, uh, thriller. I feel like in a less capable director's hands, like <clears throat> than Cronenberg. I feel like this film could have just turned into that first act over and over and yeah. over again. It could have been a really like melancholic, Murder like mystery. emotional, yeah. stupid fucking movie. Yeah. Uh, but it wasn't. It's very lean. It's very mean. And it's kind of like a cruel film in a lot of ways. But in this weird, like it's almost fully nihilistic, but the upswing yeah. at it, like everything comes at a cost is what this film kind of deals out. And I love the resolution at the end and how that plays out. And that even though he dies, he has started something that will bring about uh, the uh, Martin uh, Stilson's death and prevent yep. the apocalypse, essentially. And he can die with that knowledge. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's something really beautiful in that. And I think uh, another thing is that we so rarely get to see Christopher Walken as a true leading man yes. and not as a character. And he's still very much Christopher Walken in it. But uh, by the end, I'm a little like, whoo. Yeah. Sea mm-hmm. walking. What's up? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's great. He's terrific in it. And I buy basically everything that this movie like deals out to me. I'm yep. like, I buy that. I buy that. I buy that. Uh, and the <laughs> ending is, you know, uh, it's it's very emotional. Um, and I think Cronenberg does a terrific job with just keeping everything very tight so that we're always perceiving everything through walk-in standpoint. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, if anything, in this day and age, as we are at the dawn of the presidential election, <laughs> yes. one of the scariest 
times. Um, you know, it's it's a very it's an almost sadly relevant film. Absolutely. Um, so uh, yeah, I I really really dig this movie a lot. Yeah, it's really uh, terrifying the yeah. uh, the prospect uh, with this ongoing election that uh, Gary Johnson might not be the next president of America. <laughs> that's, that's what we're talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. We're talking yeah. about oh, for Gary. But I, I also just love, sorry, in the in the leanness of the film, what I always think of is the uh, scene after um, the kind of secondary story of him becoming the tutor to the kid and, and, you know, him preventing that like Little League like or hockey game thing from happening. And when he realizes that he prevented that child from dying, but not, but not the others. And there could have been this huge, I feel like in almost any other film, there would have been this maudlin scene about that. But yeah. it's just like, a, it's just a shot mm-hmm. of the father just like looking, hard, like it's this indescribable expression and then it just moves on mm-hmm. it's like these little lives that he is affecting and it just keeps moving on and on and on and it's amazing the conversation that we had yesterday i feel like it's worth mentioning i mean just just the one the one thing that that kind of um kind of upsets me like it feels like a missed opportunity with this movie is that you never see the change that he enacts by by knowing the future um, having any negative rep- repercussions? Yeah, that, that's uh, it, missing. It's, yeah, you know, he he tells the <laughs> the kid not to play hockey, and so the kid doesn't play hockey. Yeah, and but the kid someone else falls in the ice. Yeah, but is that, that really? Uh, you know, yeah, I I don't know. The kid it, grows it, up to be a serial it seems, killer. Yeah. It seems to teach the lesson that that changing future for the good is good. That's just yeah. it's it good. Go like, into the ripple effect. Yeah, yeah there's no yeah. butterfly effect in this. I feel like they could have so easily just like um, earlier in the movie, if Martin Sheen shook it, really did shake his hand. Something minor, but but revealing of Martin Sheen's character not not him blowing up the world, but him you know doing something else that that's kind of you know um, no that shows him to be a to be a um, you know a, a morally reprehensible kind of kind of person underneath but not something major enough that like i want to kill this guy but then christopher walken changes something else which sets into um uh motion like a a sequence of events that leads to martin sheen having now this this much more serious future yeah i feel i just feel like i I see what you're saying i just feel like some of those plots become really unwieldy um, and, and, uh, I don't know if I've ever seen one really well pulled off. So, oh yeah. If you're dealing with the consequences of altering the future, it could just go on and on. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, like, what was that Ashton Kutcher movie? It's a butterfly effect. Oh, it's actually yeah. called that. Uh, well, yeah. I just, I, I feel like that for, for two reasons though. It's not just like, I, I agree that plots like that can definitely get really, really, uh, convoluted really quick, but, but more to, to, um, to distract the watcher from from the obvious impending something about yeah. Martin Sheen is not right. <laughs> like from the moment he puts that button in his hand, I remember even seeing the movie for the very first time, being like, "Okay, like <laughs> Martin Sheen's got a bad future. Like does not want anybody to know his future." Um, and and I feel like like if I had been distracted from that, I would have enjoyed it that much more. When later in the movie. He shakes his hand and it's like, oh, oh shit, this guy's going to end the, yeah. the world. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, Stephen King's always really binary with the good and evil. Like in the yeah. book I mentioned earlier, the Martin Sheen's a traveling Bible salesman. He goes up and a dog comes over and he kicks it to death. Yeah. That's the very first scene that you meet Greg Stilson in. So you, right away you're like, oh, bad, bad man. man. Bad man. <laughs> bad dog. I mean, man. And then the protagonist's name is John Smith. 
Stephen King was like, I'll think of a real name later. And then just kept it. Yeah. John Smith. I, I really like uh, the the like the first five minutes of the movie, too. Just everything going perfect for Christopher Walken. Yeah. It's like, here's my perfect life. Here's my perfect girlfriend. He's, here's the perfect school that I that I uh, I teach at. Everything's like, great. Perfect yeah. day at the roller coaster park. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> now I'm going to have my perfect drive home. Yeah. <laughs> just, just so, like, all, it's almost like... Uh, yeah, it's always like comedically bright before <laughs> just everything goes to absolute <laughs> shit for him. Uh, now I'm gonna have my perfect drive home. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Is that a perfect tanker truck? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> oh my god. Dan's dying. <laughs> Is that a perfect truck? <laughs> All right, enough. All right. <sighs> Moving along? Yep. We got two more now. Question for you guys. Do you want to do number two, uh, quick break oh. and final thoughts with one, or do you want to do two, one, quick break, and then a final thoughts after one? Oh. References. Whatever. Uh, I think break after one. Break after one. I agree. Because there's no suspense in one at all. So number two. <laughs> Keep that in. Mm-hmm. Oh, it will. It will stay in. That's my drinking game with this podcast. Every same, every time you say at all. Oh, really? <laughs> I just get my flask out while I'm on the TTC. Oh, at all. It's not the, you're not the first person to tell me that. I know. Okay. Shit. Where are we? Number two. two. And East would be so proud if he was here. Mr. Brian Singer's apt pupil. Really? It's going to be surprising to wow. some, I think. Place time. I think this one was was just floating around the middle of everyone's list. Absolutely. And but it got everything voted else on was everyone's so list. divisive. Yeah, exactly. exactly. It just kind of made its way up. Um, yeah, because so, it's not that good. No, and, and uh, what's... not number two good. I mean, how it ended up on mine is I felt like a bit similar to how I felt about it, where I'm like, I get that this... I get what this movie is. But for me, what I really love about it is uh, Ian McKellen. Yeah, he's the best part uh, of the movie. And, yeah. and that's kind of where I lay with it. I don't have a lot else to say. So I like, see, this is, we, we had Shawshank earlier, and I said I didn't like how long that fucking took to get into it because it was inconsequential to the story um, to have this whole opening sequence with the cheating and so forth. You can just say, you put him in jail and say it. Like, I have no problem. If you're going to narrate the entire film, then one more line of exposition is not going to hurt yeah. me. Fill in the hole. Yeah. And don't don't um, make us go through this. Yeah. But with this film, um, they get to it like right away. They're just like, saw you on a bus. You're a Nazi. Like that's literally pretty much. I mean, what do you know says. how many men, like older men, I've gone up to and just been like, "You're a Nazi," and <laughs> waited for some kind of reaction, and then been like, "I got you." Yeah. <laughs> oh. So far, it's just been a bunch of restraining orders. Yeah, I just remember, like, nobody really picks up on anything in this movie. And then when the old guy, he has to go to the school with the kid, right? Yeah, and chat with Schwimmer. And he never refers to him as my grandson. You know, he keeps calling him the boy. Yeah. <laughs> and the guidance counselor, I was just like, okay. I guess that's how they speak to each other. And I like at the end with Schwimmer uh, at the graduation ceremony. It's like, oh, I'm sad to not see your grandpa Victor here. And and then the dad's like, he's in, like, New Mexico in a wheelchair. What the fuck are you talking about kind of thing? And then you see Schwimmer, like, kind of putting it together. 
But even at that point, he's so fucking dumb. He doesn't put it together until he literally sees a newspaper article. Yeah. And then he goes to try and strong arm this kid who's clearly associated with a Nazi, mm-hmm. like a high ranking Nazi <laughs> official. Just be like, oh, yeah, I can totally strong arm him into whatever. And of course, the kid's like, nope, I'm going to tell everyone you wanted to fuck me. So all I Bye. remember about this is people did not like this movie. Because it, uh, this was the follow-up from Usual Suspects, right? Usual yes. Suspects was a really good movie, and this Wait, was more of a... Was that right after? Was this right after? This was his was immediate, his, his follow-up, but it was like three years later. Yeah, it was a few years in between. Yeah. Oh. Probably, Usual Suspects was like 94, this was 97. Yeah, yeah I thought he like had that. one yep. in between. This was 98. Suspects is 95 then. Yeah. Either way. I thought he had something shit in between. Uh, usual subjects, 95, app people, 98, direct, Interesting. Uh, directly after. Did he produce something that I'm thinking of? Who cares? What no, I want? guess I was just correct. And <laughs> for my perfect drive home. <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally leaving that in. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I mean, I kind of, um, I kind of like the, um, uh, the way that it, you know, it starts with, um, uh, with the boy using um, using Kellen, and then and then he kind of shift. They, yeah, there's that Kellen, shift in the power balance, yeah. and then they they almost come out of it with like a a mutual uh, like a you know not respect, more, but yeah, yeah, but more like, like an understanding. Of, yep. you know, pretty yeah. much, like they they're they're in each other's claws. One thing I love about this film is all these films that we've been talking about. Stephen King likes putting. Supernatural stuff. I thought stuff. you were just going to say likes pudding. <laughs> really likes pudding. Sorry. He likes dessert. <laughs> he likes taking these supernatural elements and putting them in very everyday settings. Like somebody will have mystical powers, but it won't, you know, like the odd exception when it manifests in a big stupid spider or something like that. It's it's all grounded in very realistic everyday terms. And so now here, the evil at play in apt pupil is history and it's a um, you know like nazis and the holocaust is a very very human evil and it's a very primeval evil mm-hmm. i just say primeval evil <laughs> <laughs> terrible anyway but it's uh you know it's it's first of all because it's factual and second of all you know everybody looks back at it as this evil that was really a confluence of circumstances and time and place and the perfect yeah. leader to raise the perfect storm for this absolute evil to occur so it's kind of uh you know it, obviously we haven't swept it under a rug but we we'd like to think that that evil is behind yeah. us and so then here in apt pupil we've got you know, a little boy who's fascinated by it and he's able to kind of ha- wield power once again. Little boys who are powerless. He's able to he's able to kind of get this old man right by the balls and um, and, and to, to both of their to both of their ruin. And in the short story, I know it goes a lot more in depth on the effects that this has on the old man. Yep. In addition to the little boy yeah. having to drudge all this up, you know. Do you remember the ending of the short story, how that went down? Anybody? No. Remember, I haven't read different seasons since I was like 16. Well, the end of the story, uh, the old man is in the hospital next to a, a, a Holocaust survivor. survivor yeah, yeah. Oh, Holocaust survivor fuck. recognizes him, so the old man has to kill himself, right? Which he does, but yeah, like the, the, right before he gets arrested. The, yeah, yeah. But then when the child hears this news, he just climbs a tree and starts shooting people on the highway. Yeah, yeah. What? And the yes. last line of the story is he climbs up there sometime in the afternoon, and the last line is the sun was setting before they shot him down. <gasps> oh, yeah. So you can just picture it in your mind. Yeah. Like oh, it's terrifying. 
So that's the end. Fuck, I forgot. That's they should amazing. have yeah. at least shot it, you know, as a oh, DVD extra. You, when did you say? When did we say this came out? Ninety-eight. No way, Jose! With yeah. like high school before, shootings. Well, you this can't... was a year before Columbine. Damn. Sorry, this was a year before Columbine. And the yeah. book I was reading makes the point of there were school shootings before Columbine, but Columbine is what popularized it mm. right. in this collective consciousness. So that's why you see uh, a lot of films afterwards, like Scream Three, Cherry Falls, some others, yeah. really get penalized about this kind of mass mm. violence. So ninety-eight, of course. And and so if this had been part of the ending in the 1998 film I could almost see it getting made almost but that's still a fucking ballsy yeah. move to put that in yeah question for you guys do you remember Elias Cote's uh, role in this film because I oh. I love it I yeah. love it it's just the homeless guy that that uh, forces his way so to speak into uh, into the equation you know, yeah. yeah then Brad Renfro him. No. No. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. He, he ends up killing yeah. him. Yeah, because he's he falls down the stairs. And, yeah, yeah. But yeah. in any case, I find it so very interesting that he plays this role so low key. This this wonderful, you know, uh, you know, I'll do whatever you want, and you know, you just give me a drink first. All this stuff. It's very. Um, if you put that in a less capable actor's hands, that role, much like Casey Jones, for example, could have literally been the dumbest cartoon and just broken up the flow of that mm. film. And it's like he's a huge reason as to why I like this film so much because it could be a fucking joke to me, you know, much like the killing, like Thomas Jane killing everybody at the end of The Mist or stuff like that. It, this doesn't play like that. This plays is completely fucking serious, and it plays as terrifying for Brad Renfro's character, and it plays as uh, you know um, an opportunity to exercise this need to kill that is building in Ian McKellen and all of this. It's even though he is just a mechanism in the film, I just love, I love his energy in the film, and I think he's really important to it. Mm. I just wanted to say that. R.I.P. Right. Brad Renfro. All right, let's do this. We going on? Yep. Who wants to announce it? I do. Okay, Alex, let's do it. Alex. So the winner is 1997's The Shining. <laughs> <laughs> the good one. Avi, <laughs> Stephen King's favorite. Stanley oh, Kubrick's The Shining boy. from 1980. Yes. That, that one, that one easily, readily, handily. And it was funny, you were making fun of us before the show about how every one of the Mermel panelists, like regular panelists that, that voted, put 1980 yeah. beside there, like just to clarify. I was voting for the 1997. <laughs> oh, okay. What are we talking? <laughs> Did that not win? Oh. Yeah, the was good there one. another one? <laughs> oh, okay. Oh. Well, the uh, the Shinning. Yeah, the Shinning one. The Shinning, yes. Um, so as I mentioned before, Planets merging. Yeah. Did you do the movie first or the book first? The movie in this particular case. Even though I was dabbling in both at the same time, I believe I saw the movie first. And I think not just for me, but for everyone, this was such a huge movie because it was the meeting of these two great, great minds. And, I mean, we just did an entire episode on The Shining, yeah. so... We, we And we go in pretty personal in there. So, I think so. Yeah, so if anyone wants to hear our personal take on it, please do listen to um, our Shining episode. Right. But it's, uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's 
speaks to Andrea. It spoke to Andrea, as I remember you recalling it in a really direct way when you mm-hmm. first saw it. Yeah. In a really, like, tangible way. But it's um, it's one of those ones, like, it took me getting into my 20s to realize that I loved it. Yeah. Uh, and that it actually meant something to me because for the longest time I didn't think I liked it. And now it's one of my favorite movies and definitely what I go to when people ask me what my favorite horror film is. Um, and it's, it's you know, it, it the terror in it for me um, outside of, you know, the unease and the uncertainty that Kubrick creates just through his filmmaking methods is, you know, the fear of intimacy. And that's something I grapple with a lot. And it's, you know being with someone who is not necessarily your blood and what happens in there and how much violence can you cause each other, um, you know, in different ways. And I think it's just incredibly powerful. And I think, um, and I only actually read the book when Andrea lent it to me um, a few years ago, which was really illuminating in a lot of ways because what Kubrick does for me in the film is he strips it of all those like little, um, little kind of things, you know, shades that Stephen King can put on characters. And for me, that's, and I enjoyed the book, but what I feel like when I watch the film is it's this big blank slate and I'm able to project so much more of myself Mm. onto it. And uh, I think topped off by all the filmic techniques, all the hints of what the overlook is, because it just hints at it. Nothing is ever overtly stated or explained. Um, Like when we were talking about that room 237 thing, one of the few things I liked about it was how they showed that the layout of the overlook doesn't make sense. I never picked up on that, but now I'm just like, oh my God, this is crazy, but awesome. That was the lady in the documentary Talking about the impossible window, which yes. should have occurred to me because I've seen the movie so many times. Yeah. They turn into a room where the elevators they've just gotten out of yep. and there's yeah. a window there. Yeah. yeah, That's great stuff. Yeah. And I think because we all understand Kubrick to be such a meticulous filmmaker, we know that that's not a mistake. Right. Yeah. Or we right. choose to believe that's not a mistake. That's him fucking with us. Um, and so I give the film a lot of credit and it's something that every time I watch it, something else speaks out to me about it. Um, and, uh, and it's, I did feel a little bit like when I was writing my book to, especially towards the end, like a little bit of like cabin fever. Cause I just wasn't leaving my bedroom for mm-hmm. like, you know, four months or six months as I like hit that kind of final push to get it done. And it was just like, Ooh. Interesting. And like yeah. the layout, the map that that viewer made, she showed that, or at least her theory was, anytime Danny sees an apparition or yeah. a ghost, his parents are either directly below or directly above. Mm. Just, just weird stuff. Yeah, I, I like him for the longest time. I really, really want to go to uh, Colorado and stay at the Stanley Hotel, which is the hotel where it's based yep. off of. Yep. But um, yeah, that's kind of like my dream trip. Interesting. Hopefully one day I'll get to go. Apparently there are quite a few people that make the pilgrimage there yeah. for it. Yeah. And especially around Halloween, um, I know people do a horror film fest there. And also I think anytime if you you can like do an upgrade, like a hundred dollar upgrade for your stay for like the haunted experience and stay in like one of the haunted rooms. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I'd do that. Yeah. I'd probably totally do that. Yeah. You just write red rum on the window. That's all. <laughs> oh my God. It would just be me window. like taking endless photographs of that. They had the Stanley Kubrick uh, ex- exhibit that came through uh, Toronto a couple years ago. And I went for a work function and I got kind of drunk at the open bar beforehand, like midday. And so like, the re- yeah, I know. Shocking. And uh, then the rest of my afternoon was running around with the director of corporate sponsorship at the organization I work for and just being like, take photos of me on like the carpet of the shining <laughs> and like kind of like rolling around on yeah. it. She was like, OK, we're done. So I love that movie. Yeah. 
the special, special film that I, every time I watch it, I get something <coughs> new. And as we discussed <coughs> in the podcast, I, I pull something more personal out of it. I kind of uncover something about, about myself that's resonating. Something about myself that the haunted Overlook Hotel it is shows tapping you. into. Hmm. Frightens me. We can talk about how the TV movie, I mean, the hedge maze, the, sorry, the hedge animals in the book, terrifying. I thought it was so scary. I don't know if it's partly being from Canada and like knowing that crunch of snow that they're talking about and and how the snow can be kind of blinding. Like if you look in a field that's snowy enough, it looks simultaneously really close and really far. Yeah, exactly. It's really disorienting. And I thought the way that scene was described in the book was so scary. And then, holy shit, there's a TV movie and the hedge animals are in it. This is going to be cool. CGI on par with the Langoliers to make those topiaries move around. The uncoolest. Yeah. Yeah, destroyed. We've mentioned before in past episodes when we were talking about Kubrick, um, some of the absolute hell that some of his he put some of his actors through. Obviously, um, help me out with the name Shelley Duvall. Duvall. I want to say Shelley Winters. No, that's also (laughs) she's also in a Kubrick film, and she's in Lolita. Lolita. Yes, she's the mom. In any case, yeah, Shelley Duvall just like going through hell on this film, and just uh, you know. it's interesting that her emotion comes off all the more genuine because it is. Oh yeah. Um, and makes it so much more. See, that's, that's something that that's worth noting is that like, I feel like the book is a lot more familial, if you will, than, Mm -hmm. than the, than the, than Kubrick's uh, interpretation of it. Where I feel as though it's, it is, it's, it's here's Jack. Like, that's what it is like to me. Yeah. Like, it's all about Jack Torrance. And and then he happens to have a kid that can like fucking see dead people and mm-hmm. shit. And, you know, I don't know. It has a cool tricycle. I don't know. <laughs> it just. What I love the most about this film is the aesthetic um, and that it, it truly creates a world that you don't or that you feel like you can't it's like dreamlike you feel like yeah. you can't inhabit this place and and I love that and I think that that's everything I think that's we we've talked about there's a ton of uh great examples in that film of a principle that he commonly uses which is the one point perspective shot um obviously we talked about probably the lowest steady cam shot at the time where you rake the the um what is it wheelchair up with a, a steady cam rig um yeah it's a wheelchair for sure um to get the the pov of the tricycle for example and things like that um there's just there's so many changes in cinema that have come about from this film Mm -hmm. that even if you're not a horror fan Mm -hmm. you can go into it and be like holy fuck like not just any kubrick film but this kubrick film has specifically changed the landscape of film you know hidden cuts in there and things like that the the way that they're done you'd see in like a spielberg nowadays for example and stuff like that um I, it's it's fantastic it, I, I love watching it i can watch it with the fucking sound off yeah and put it start it in the middle and i'll just yeah look at it and we'll be like Ooh, ah. so yeah. yeah exactly so yeah. oh yeah who that is that another reference that was a stretch the guy who thinks you have to watch it forwards and backwards at the same time yep. yeah. 
bananas. I couldn't get on board with that. I couldn't get on board with the uh, Ullman's stapler on his desk being a phallic symbol. Uh, oh, come on. Dick, not that one, no. The Native American one might have something to it, though, yeah, sure. I think. Yeah, we talked about a lot about that in our uh, episode, too. Hmm. But uh, I don't have much to say about The Shining other than, like, because you guys have already put it quite eloquently, Brandon, you two, except for um, just acting-wise, that British butler. Oh, in the scene in the bathroom, he really, really carries his weight. It's great in the film because of the weight of the word. Correct, exactly the way he says it. You just know what on his face. You just. I had to correct her, and that's another scene (laughs) where the aesthetic doesn't exactly work. Like there's something horribly wrong about the feeling of that whole scene, and just like the bathroom itself just seems wrong. There's something wrong with it. It's too clean. Like it's white and red. Yeah, yeah. Weird. Do you such a huge party raging outside? It's silent. Or no? Can you hear some? Can you still hear the music? I think you can maybe hear something, but there's no one else in there. Yeah. It's so hard to tell where the unease is coming from. Yeah. So many of these scenes that should everything's otherwise... just off. Every interaction <laughs> is off. I I love that that it's almost like um he's he's uh the the um the crazy one at first like he's in just such like a normal environment that everybody's just paying no mind to the fact that this guy is wearing stuff from the eighties and like he when he when he starts talking to um uh. Uh, Delbert Grady and and it's just like like you I I know you like yeah you you killed your wife but he's just like no 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 like that that's ridiculous sir like please clean your hands like <laughs> let me let me continue cleaning your jacket but then it slowly like slowly gets a little bit crazier yeah, yeah. and <laughs> with the uh, the having to to correct. Yeah. Uh, them, like it, it just it it does this awesome flip at one point where it goes from like Jack Torrance is crazy to nope now the whole scene is crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, like he gives himself over to it only to a certain extent. I'm gonna go along with everything going on here because I got a drink in my hand. But the, like, the disbelief comes when he can't get Delbert Grady to admit that he hacked up his kid. Yeah, yeah. that's gone too far. <laughs> I wanted to mention because I didn't mention it during Pet Cemetery. That um, this film and Pet Cemetery are two of the most tense and continuously tense films that I've ever seen. And with no need, no need to relieve that tension. No comic relief needed. No, uh, and it's definitely a constant slow build in both cases. But generally, you release that pressure somehow because an audience just can't sustain it. And it's two instances. And I realize it's very two very, very different films. But where there's somehow just in the mastery of, of either the writing or uh, the, the execution or what have you that you don't ever need to back off the tension to mm-hmm. keep someone engaged. I find that so interesting and anomalous. In fact, like it, it blows my mind that I think back to those films and think like there wasn't an opportunity for me to get up and take a bathroom break. Like I'm stopping this film. You know, there's there's. That's just the way it is. Or I'm just going to pee my pants. Like, that's how it's going to go. It's interesting. I I mean, save for other Kubrick work, which, like, I would say equally, like, 2001 is, is, well, I guess you count out the whole That's That's kind of weirdness. It plateaus and then builds again. It never goes back down. You're right. But it it does carry on that level. I don't don't know. I think this is one of his most effective ones. I don't know if I. I don't know if you guys agree on that. Oh, point, I'm with but. you. Yeah, it's totally. my number one favorite. Just in terms of viewing experience, have any of you fan. seen Funny Games? Yeah, yeah. of course. Um, that was which version? I've seen them both. Yeah, but both. 
um, they were tense to the point of discomfort for me. Like in one, I forget which one I had to stop halfway through and go outside and have a cigarette. It was just, it was relentless, but not necessarily in a, well, it wasn't a pleasurable watching experience. I know no. it's not supposed to be. No. But those were really tense. Those are really tense movies. Yeah. I'd love to do a Faculty of Horror episode on those, actually, Alex. I was thinking about it. I was thinking about the fourth wall. And I was thinking about it, it's the most effective breaking of the fourth wall. Oh, and for and me, <laughs> for me, it's funny games. Yeah, I almost wet my pants. It's a good example. But it's an example. I don't understand. I, I'm, I'm, st- I'm intrigued as to why that was so effective right there, what it is about that movie. Because um, it, it's, it's a home invasion, which is a very intimate set. Well, whatever. We're going on a tangent it now. It's just so unexpected. Yeah, It's not like 24-hour party people where he's your buddy and he's taking you through the story. Yeah. And it's like, okay, well, that's Steve Coogan being... Boy, and clever. Wilson, yeah. I remember, well, the first time I saw it, yeah, I had no idea. It came out of nowhere for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we're getting off, I guess, topic. Any final thoughts on The Shining, everyone? Great movie! What can you say that hasn't been yeah. said before, yeah. you know? Yeah. Like, it is hard. Just watch it. Check out that documentary if you haven't. You don't have yeah. to agree with those people. It's batshit crazy, but it's... um. Check out that book by Donnell Olson. If you're book. a fan, check out the uh, the the, the Overlook novel, Hotel Tumblr, yeah, that's which is run thing. by Lee Unkrich, and he does a really great. He's the caretaker. That's he does a, a great really, name. <laughs> tons of new content, new fan artwork, new interviews surfacing all the time. Correct check me out from, our uh, episode on it, of course. Yeah, um, December I'll link last year. to both year. that and to your uh, to your book. Where to buy that mm-hmm. in the show notes? Yeah, the Overlook Hotel exterior in the film The Shining that was different from the interior, right? He right. had two yes. different hotels. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Because the uh, the interiors were all shot on a soundstage in Pinewood Studios in London, and um, they used which Lee Manor somewhere. But yeah, I remember those two being very because that was kind of crazy that they had built all those studios. Yeah. He just does not want to leave London. I can't believe he made Full Metal Jacket in London. That's insane. Apparently a massive fear of flying. And also, if you've ever met a British person, that's kind of what they're like. Really? Yeah. They don't like to leave the island? Nope. (laughs) Empire reigns. Wow. Hashtag Brexit. (laughs) All right. We're going to take a quick break, come back, and, and hash out our final thoughts on Stephen King. All right, so just one more quick thank you to Alex and Andrea from the Faculty of Horror podcast. Uh, It was absolutely great having you on. We love your show. uh, And if you aren't already subscribed to their show, get over to facultyofhorror.com and do so. And if you're not, how how is that even possible? We've talked to them like a million times, and they've been around for four years. Have you been living under a rock or something? All right, so we're back, and... Final thoughts on Mr. Stephen King, his adaptations, his books, whatever you really want to talk about, his red, white, and blue catalog. Um, Stephen King, may his reign never falter. <laughs> Hail to the king. Yeah. Uh, for me, Stephen King is, for somebody like me who is an academic and I feel like I am always fighting for the legitimacy of horror, I'm always fighting for its importance and its relevance and its art. And I think Stephen King had, uh, I'm not going to say a similar trajectory because I'm not uh, really anywhere near where he's at, but uh, but he, he champions... He champions small town America. He champions a good old fashioned horror yarn. He's not fancy about it. He's not high handed about it. And uh, yeah, he's a great American hero. Devin? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think it's it's um, it's funny. Uh, like we kind of touched on just just the the. Um, um, did we talk about this off camera or on camera? Um, the the uh, populist uh, art and just the the way that it it gets devalued. I think yes, in, in my early life, um, I I avoided a lot of his stuff because he was just just such a go to household name. And Absolutely. I think you you kind of uh, it's hard to cast that that aside. You know, um, it's it's like it you know admitting that you like you know, the song of, of some, you know, what is widely regarded as like a basic pop act or something like that. It, it doesn't change how good the song is to you, but, Mm -hmm. but it, or it shouldn't, but it does. And, and I think that that might be the way that a lot of people are with, with Stephen King. It's certainly where I kind of came from uh, uh, originally. And I think going back uh, over the work uh, today and over the last like week or so, I, I, there's, there's, um, you know, there's, there's, uh, it's certainly not as, you know, as, as, um, uh, you know, uh, as flat or basic or, or, you know, whatever you want to say as, as, you know, some people would make out and, and probably just because he, he's, he's the, the go-to name for it. Yep. For Danny? Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree with you guys. Uh, he's definitely elevated the genre. Um, made it more visible. I just hope that I feel like there's been kind of a general um, assumption that his best work is behind him because he had a rough decade or two, like the 90s. He was uh, kind of uneven. There's some good stuff there, but there's a lot of bad stuff. Same with the 2000s. So I hope that he keep they keep adapting his movies. I hope revival gets made. I think. Uh, yeah, that would be interesting. Cell was bad. There's a lot of bad stuff out there. I think it's going to come back around with because there's been so much hype around Dark, ta- Glenn, Dark Tower, Gu- yeah. Gunslinger, whatever. That's right. It's, the Dark yeah, Tower. it's going to mostly be Gunslinger, yeah. but, which is the only one I've read. Right. But apparently, it's going to. Uh, I've just seen so much hype already about it, and like set visits, and and there's yeah. a lot of people really excited about it, and I think it's excited about it for mainstream culture in a different way than just straight horror, a bit more sci-fi, a yeah. bit more fantasy, as I understand it's the it. Game of Thrones type demographic. Yeah, yeah. so it's, I think it might kind of come around again, in, in maybe a different way, um, in the next year or so. Awesome. Yeah, uh, for me, for final thoughts, I wanted to say uh, Stephen King has said in in many a press conferences or book tours or, you know, lectures and these sorts of things that he's done that he believes that people don't come back to his work to be scared necessarily. What they come back for is the voice. And I believe that to be 100% true because it is the commonality. And in fact, it is the only commonality between all of the stories of his that I actually like deeply care for. Um, there's no other no other common trend much of the time um and there's there's so much validity too when he says something like you know rod serling's gone for example i think that he very much has that kind of energy like a rod serling like a you know that every week a, the story's going to be different on the twilight zone but you know that you're going to be compelled and you know you're going to you know tune in and watch for and and it's the same thing with Stephen King. And for, you know, a kid who grew up poor, single mom, his brother, his mom probably went without food. They say, well, he, she was sending him $5 a week at 
University of Maine, um, you know, and really having a rough start of it, having kids young. Um, it's miraculous the tenacity of this man um, that, that that he still he was able to kind of push through and make his dream come true, and it's something to aspire to for all of us. Yeah, absolutely. Keep writing. Yeah. I think that's about it. Anyone else have anything to say before we wrap it up? Just like to say how much I love chatting Stephen King books and novels. Like when we made it a debate, it's we tried to think of things that horror fans fight over, and they fight over this. It's so you know we all kind of landed on The Shining really close to the top, but every other step up there, we all totally had different, different things that resonated with us and spoke to us, and some of them very deeply in a from a childhood coming of age point of view. So. Please do join in on the discussion and comment and share this and let's all have this conversation together. Yep. Now in the show notes for this episode, I am going to put up everyone's list, including East who couldn't make it here, um, that we made that, that we tallied into making our top list. So there will be the master list and then there will be the list that each one of us created on our own. Mm -hmm. So you can look it over and pat the people who you feel are right on the back and yell at the people that you feel are wrong. Um, before we, before I do my little spiel, um, Alex and Andrea, thank you again. Uh, I really, I always love chatting with both of you. Uh, Alex, you've been on before, and I appreciate it. We appreciate you, Brandon. Yeah, it was Thanks fun. for having us on. Um, do you want to just tell people once again how they can find you if they aren't already subscribed to the show? If they didn't stop this episode, subscribe to your show, and then start again. How can they find you? Uh, you can find us on iTunes. Uh, just search Faculty of Horror. We will come right up. Um, and we are also at we are also at facultyofhorror.com. We are on Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. So uh, find us there. Maybe start with one of the Stephen King episodes if you're so inclined, like The Shining or uh, Do You Like Scary Movies, where we both talk about our scariest movies, menstruation in horror, all that kind of stuff. He's omnipresent uh, in horror, so it's pretty... It's been great to talk about him overall as a person. So, mm-hmm. thanks. Also, another one that I would recommend is uh, one that you guys both hate, which is your first episode, which is Black <laughs> Christmas and <laughs> Halloween. I very much like that episode. So, if you like those films, then listen to that one. And I also very much like your two-part um, alien uh, synopsis. Very cool. My my favorite, better one for me. Uh, ironically, I don't like the films as much, but the second part of that is fucking wicked. Definitely changed my perspective on three in particular. So. Thanks. One to check out. Um, yeah, remember this is just the beginning of the conversation. We want to continue it on with you. So uh, go to our website, moviesformylife.com, or email us at show at moviesformylife.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Mermel Podcast, at MRML Podcast, um, and also on Facebook at facebook.com slash moviesformylife. Uh, and we're just getting that going. We're starting to throw some video up there and, uh, behind the scenes stuff for in terms of like pictures and things like that from, from episodes, you're going to find it on our Facebook page. So definitely check us out there. We'd love to get those numbers up a little bit more than they are presently. Um, if you want to reach uh, our panel specifically on Twitter, you guys want to offer up your Twitters. I'm at Necromandria. I'm at scare Alex. Devin. Uh, I'm at YR underscore homeboy. That means your homeboy. Excellent. 
I'm at uh, Leafs Love Hurts, a defunct blog. All right. Um, you can find us on iTunes as well, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, uh, TuneIn Radio, uh, anywhere that podcasts can be heard. And if we're not where you listen to podcasts, then let us know and we'll get there for you because uh, we're you know nice Canadian folk. And I think that's about it. So thanks for hanging out with us. Bye. It's been real nice talking to you. Bye. recording that entire time so just for full disclosure all of these conversations about about drugs were all purely a work of fiction huge cinematic or tour the hell did i just say huge the world huge tour. cinematic oh, to slow that down or cinematic a huge horror oh my i'm done it's my favorite show ask ever. us why it's yeah. so great yeah. It's great. I love it. Why do I love it? Go. <laughs> Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> All right.